Hi, my name is Veronica Carlson, and you are listening to Monster Kid Radio. It is time for episode 430 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to this episode of Monster Kid Radio, or we may as well just change our name to Monster Bash Radio at this point because we've gotten more content from Monster Bash that happened six weeks ago. This is week six of our Monster Bash coverage. And I gotta tell you, sometimes I worry that I'm giving you too much Monster Bash and not enough of everything else. But then I get a message like this. Hey, Derek, it's your boy Bill over at the upcoming Bill Watches Movies podcast. And I wanted to shoot you a quick message just to say how much I am loving the Monster Bash episodes. As I said before, this uh, 2019 bash was my first and I had a wonderful time thanks to pretty much everyone who attended or volunteered. Now, I've been a Monster Kid since 19... But I'm new to the Monster Kid fandom, so to speak. And it's wonderful to see how you and Monster Kid Radio, Rod over at the Bloody Pit, Jeff and Richard from the Classic Horrors Club, and finally Mary, Nick, and Juan over at the B Movie Cast kind of allow us to keep that fresh, fragrant Monster Bash feeling all year long. I feel like Dickens' character Scrooge, and I should throw a coin out the window to a young street urchin and tell him to go fetch me a new corpse. Thank you again, Derek, and thank you to all the podcasters mentioned for all that you do for us Monster Kids. It is truly appreciated. Everyone take care, and I will talk to you later. So I guess what I'm saying is is that if you're tired of Monster Bash coverage, it's Bill's fault. Okay, not really. And actually, in all seriousness, Bill, thank you for sending that message in. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, Monster Bash is just something special. And I am so glad that you've discovered this online fandom, this virtual tribe, so to speak, of all of us monster kids who love this stuff. The B-Movie cast, Rod over at the Nashi cast, Rich and Jeff, you know, Chris Page over at the Time Shifters and Orphan Entertainment podcast, Stephen D. So, you know, I could just start mentioning everybody, all the podcasters, everybody who was at Monster Bash, but then that would make a pretty boring episode. Bottom line is, I am thrilled that you found this online community, that you're discovering or rediscovering your Monster Kid fandom, and uh, I'm glad we're friends, man. Thanks for sending that message in. I appreciate it. Well, okay. Uh, I am starting to run out of Monster Bash material. Uh, This week, we're going to hear a chat that I had with author Dwight Kemper. Now, originally, we were going to have a reading of a short story by Dwight, but I'm having some technical issues at this point, and that's going to get pushed back to next week. Also, this week, you're going to hear the Q&A that Veronica Carlson did at Monster Bash, and just because I want to throw it into the mix, when Josh Kennedy introduced his film, House of the Gordon, there's a little mini Q&A session with him as well, and he introduced the cast, and I'm just going to let that run on this episode of Monster Kid Radio as well. But that's not all you're going to get. Now, of course, we have our regular segments. We've got Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Story, and it's a good one. Well, they're all good, but this one's really good. I really liked it. And then we have Kenny looking at famous monsters of Filmland. So we have all of that, and... 
Monster Kid Radio listeners, I'm thrilled to have Stephen D. Sullivan on this episode of Monster Kid Radio to announce the winners of the Monster Rally Retro Awards, or the rallies, of the Best Actor, Actress, Director, Movie, and Monsters of 1935, 1945, and 1955. If you're just now joining us or you're not familiar with the rallies, well, we're going to tell you what they are before we announce the winners. So stay tuned. That's coming. We've got all of that coming in this episode of Monster Kid Radio, so let's go ahead and get into it right after this. Hey everybody, this is Heidi Bennett of Vibrant Visionaries Podcast and Spinal Tap Minute Podcast. And this is a quick little promo for an upcoming event and it's Movies by Minutes Portland. We're going to be meeting up in Portland, Oregon on Saturday, August 24th for live podcasting games on the stage we've got the movies by minutes guys from star wars minute actually it's going to be a mashup of star wars minute and the godfather minute the newly pod game rick from mad max minute is going to be hosting that vibrant visionaries where i'm going to have the fellas from open the podcast doors hal (laughs) which i think you could probably figure out which podcast that is and then just added the cast and the furious. So lots of live podcasting and some games going on. Tickets are $20. It's a family friendly event. It's really a social event. It's not just for the movies by minutes listener, but the podcast listener and fan alike. Go to moviesbyminutes.com slash Portland. That's moviesbyminutes.com slash Portland. Portland to buy tickets. Again, tickets are 20 bucks. See you in Portland. Enter the forbidden shrine of the four elements as the visual sorcery of Dinorama swirls you through danger after danger after danger. The monster hornet, walrus giganticus, mammoth minotaur. In the newest and most spectacular Sinbad adventure of them all, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Starts Wednesday at theaters everywhere. Check your paper for theater or drive-in near you. The terror shock that can't be stopped. You're not God. You're not even human. You murdered those men and you made me a murderer too. Weird experiments of accursed scientists turn human beings into living, hybrid hell monsters. Now you hold hands with the devil. Now you run. Run for your life from the terror, the torment, the torture inflicted by Satan's ambassador of evil. The next victim could be you. Or you, or you, caught forever by the curse of the fly. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you a story from EC Horror Comics. Today's story is The Dead Will Return. It's from The Vault of Horror, number 13, the June-July issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Al Feldstein. 
So sit back, relax, while I tell this soggy tale. Bert rows a small dinghy into the sea, and he tells his girlfriend Flo to push the dead body of her husband overboard while a lighthouse shines in the distance ashore. She pushes her husband Hank's limp and lifeless body into the drink. Bert and Flo have been having an affair. Hank was the lighthouse keeper, and they believed he had $16,000 hidden somewhere in the lighthouse. Flo planned on telling people that Hank was on a fishing trip and didn't come home. When his body washed up on shore somewhere along the coast, they would say that it was obviously a fishing accident. Bert and Flo searched the lighthouse to find the cash so that they could run away together. They were unable to find the sum in the lighthouse, so Flo went to search the beachside storehouse. Flo screamed. Hank's lifeless body had washed up onto shore right at the lighthouse. Their scheme would never work now. It was strange that he would wash up right here at the lighthouse beach. But coincidences happen, right? Right? That night they found a high cliff and threw the soggy body back into the sea. The current would surely carry him far away from the lighthouse. Days passed and no bodies were reported to have washed up on shore. Bert went down to the beach to go fishing when he made a terrifying discovery. Hank's body washed up again on the shore. By this time, Hank was looking a little worse from wear. And now the pair have to think of something quick. They drove the body up to Falmouth and laid Hank on the beach. Someone surely would find the body now and believe it was just washed ashore. More days passed without any report of a body being found. What could be happening? Bert headed up to Falmouth to see if the body was still there. Flo sat at home, upset. Suddenly, Flo saw seawater leaking underneath the doorway. What could be on the other side? The frightened Flo backed up the spiral stairs to the top of the lighthouse. She was trapped in the top room, and she could hear footsteps on the stair behind her. She had nowhere to run. Then her scream echoed, unheard, across the night sky. Soon, Bert drove up in his car. Why was the lighthouse's light extinguished? He went into the lighthouse and saw the watery trail up the stairs. He followed up to the top room, not anxious to tell Flo that Hank's body was missing from the beach. Another scream echoed in the night. The next morning, investigators from the Lighthouse Performance Board went to see why the light had been turned off. They found Bert and Flo dead, covered in seaweed and brine, and a decomposed body laid on the beach with $16,000 in a money belt. The end. I hope you enjoyed my floating of this story. It's tales like this that make me love EC Comics. The wicked will be punished either here or by the hereafter. We know things will go badly for the killers, and it does, deliciously. It's so much fun reading them boast about their plan and the great life that's in store for them. So naive. I love it. <laughs> 
Alf Feldstein's art is always top-notch. He's excellent at telling stories simply and efficiently, and then turns up the heat when it's game time. The panel of Flo's face when she's trapped at the top of the lighthouse is amazing. She's drawn and she's clearly terrified with tears falling down her face. Flo has the look of a blonde femme fatale, world-weary, evil, but still beautiful. It's wonderful work. If you're interested in a copy of The Vault of Horror Volume 1, the book can be purchased on Amazon and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can find me on my podcast, The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics, and Bat Books for Beginners, where we talk about historical Batman and Bat Family comics. You can also catch me on Twitter, at Professor Frenzy, and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can find The Professor Frenzy Show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned, and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Do you enjoy movies like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler? Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, tune in to BMovieCast at BMovieCast.com. Hey, you want to die, huh? Rev it up. Action you've never seen races across your screen as you thrill to a new dimension in picture-making, Carnival of Souls. This is the shocking story of a who crawled from the river to race through a nightmare, walking a tightrope between heaven and hell. From the unreal, she crashes through to reality. Try as she will to lead a normal life, she is torn from a goal. There's no privacy in her life. She's ever watched, tormented. Either it's her neighbor, desirous of her physically, watching her with his leering eye, or it's the evil eye of the man, the man who taunts her, the man who wants her. From the bottom of the river they come. They reach for her. They demand that she dance with them at the Carnival of Souls. She is a girl driven mad by the relentless forces of the beyond. He will not relent as he comes for her again and again. She whirls between the real and the unreal, trying to cling to life. I like being with you, really I do. I don't want to be alone tonight. I want to be near you. Honey. You don't want to go in there all by yourself, do you? But she must watch herself in death. She must dance at the Carnival of Souls held just for her. For they have come for her for the last time, claiming her as one of their own.
carnival of souls arouses such emotion that the management has been forced to state positively no refunds. Carnival of Souls is the shocker of all time, guaranteed to sweep you into a new dimension of picture making. You can't afford to miss Carnival of Souls. You want me to do a sound check? I'm watching my levels right now. Okay. Test check, test check, test check. We are good, man. All right. So we just did a, a sound check, a test of levels with Dwight Kemper, author extraordinaire, a man wearing the uh, the Beetlejuice suit. How are you doing, man? I'm I'm doing well. I'm I'm dressed for radio, so that it, <laughs> so that it can come bursting through the uh, uh, radio waves right into the living rooms of. Dozens of people who listen to your voice. <laughs> Dozens of people. Dozens. I was going to say, you know, maybe like tens or twenties, but yeah, okay. Mm. <laughs> you said you're dressed for radio. It's like better than having a face for radio, I guess, right? That's true. Yes. Although some might say, yeah. Ah, come on with that mustache. Come on. Man. Well, yes, that's right. I have a handlebar mustache. So <laughs> you're an inspiration, sir. Thank so you. how's it going? That's going well. I actually, I actually just uh, sold a copy of Bela Lugosi and the House of Doom to none other than makeup artist extraordinaire Tom Savini. Very cool. I'm excited because I know when you come to these things, you're here to, you know, have Sell. a good time, but wheel and deal, make a little money too. So yeah. that's awesome. Yep. Was he your first sale of the weekend? No. Actually, my very first two sales, I have printed out copies of my most recent short story which was going to be published in time for monster bash the story answers the question where does the frankenstein monster's brain come from and if we can actually coordinate it properly this weekend i will do a reading of it so that you can actually play it on your broadcast well and i was going to say that's that's the plan so listeners stay tuned because i'm mm. sure at some point dwight and mm. i will make it happen so you will hear it on an upcoming mm. episode of monster kid radio if mm. not later in this very episode mm. so yes. don't change that podcast dial yes because the name of this sh of short story is dysfunctional cerebri Cerebri, cerebri, cerebri. You wrote it. Come on. Man. I know. I, I didn't write the damn label on the stupid jar. <laughs> so, I wrote everything else, but not that. Okay. But, but that's the title of it is, it's the title of the, the label on the jar with the abnormal brain in it. So, so yeah, it's my fault that I actually gave it a title I can't pronounce properly. <laughs> so other than selling as many copies of your books as possible, what else are you looking forward to this weekend? Well, getting together with other monster kids. Are there any other guests you're looking to spend time with or meet here? I've already met up with a bunch of Facebook friends that I had to kind of look up to see. Oh, that one. Okay. And oh, him. Okay. That's who that is. All right. So, uh, I did that in the elevator coming down. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, coordinating with them as well. I actually got to go swimming in the, in the pool here. It's an, actually, it's an indoor outdoor pool with a tunnel between the two so that you're indoors and then you go through this tunnel and then you're outdoors and and doing it in since we have Rico Browning here I actually did swim in the manner of the creature from the Black Lagoon just to get the right effect. Now you've met Rico before, right? Yes, I've met him at like three other conventions plus a couple of times here and I also met uh, Julie Adams at those same conventions who I <sighs> dearly miss, lovely lady. Yeah, um, we all do. She um, was actually rather excited when I asked her questions, not about the creature from the Black Lagoon, but about her appearance in Mr. Ring in Kolchak the Night Stalker. So. I remember you telling me about that last time. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, she's she's going to be missed. And I, I guess was there a tribute happening to her at some point this weekend? I thought uh, I saw something. We already had it. Okay. Um, the Witch's Dungeon is putting together a documentary, and they showed us raw footage of not only her but Zachary and, uh, and a couple of other people. So, so yes, that was nice to see. So, and I've actually met Zachary on a couple of occasions. In fact, I don't know if I've told you the story, but Zachary was you know in this tent area with like Adam West and Barbara Eden and things like that, and he's in this giant throne and. I'm just basically going over to say hi, and he goes, oh, hello, and then he takes a DVD out of his pile of DVDs, and he asks, and what's your name? And I said, well, my name is Dwight, and I know your name is Zachary, and then suddenly he's writing on the DVD cover, and then hands it to me, and then I said, well, I guess I better pay for this, since he's already gone to the trouble to autograph it for me. So, is that what you do when you're trying to sell your books then? It's like, hey, what's your name? Well... I'm going to give that a shot, <laughs> just to see if that works. But uh, yeah, so then, I think I think you have to be like 90 years old and in in ghoulish makeup to get away with that. Oh, but, okay, yeah. okay. I'm only 61. I have a ways to go before I can actually get away with that sort of thing. It says, oh, just buy the book. He's just a crazy old guy. <laughs> so. Now we got the, the old standby here. The, ah, the, yes. The, the infamous Classic Five. Ah, yes, indeed. All right, here we go. Card number one is a universal card. Do you prefer it? Oh, and you can do the voice for both of these characters, probably. Okay. Dwight Fry is Renfield or Fritz? Ah, uh, well, let's see. As Renfield, he would, uh, he would be more like, Who wants to deal with flies when I can have nice, juicy spiders. <laughs> and then, of course, as Fritzies go, look! Oh, don't worry. No blood, no decay, just a few stitches. Frankenstein, Frankenstein, where is it? Where is it? <laughs> that, that's, that, that is Fritz. So, so which character do you prefer? Uh, I think Fritz, because for, for some reason they cut out a joke in Dracula that would have explained why he's creeping up on the nurse who fainted. And they actually showed the whole joke in the Spanish version, because it looks like he's about to do something nasty to the nurse, when in fact there's a fly next to the nurse oh, okay. that he grabs. So it's like a fake out for the audience. But for some reason, they cut out the fake out. That's too bad. I mean, both performances are great. I mean, I love Dwight Fry in, in everything uh, that he does, even when he's being a, a nondescript uh, villager like he, he was in uh, uh, The Ghost of Frankenstein and things like that. Card number two, who else could have or should have played Dracula? Ooh, yeah. Are we talking about people in the, of that era? You know, any anybody. Okay. Well, it could have or would have played Dracula. Huh. Now, it would have been interesting had he lived if they could have if they could have gotten the fellow who played in Nosferatu. Oh, okay, Max Schreck. Max Schreck to finally get to play Dracula. Yeah, actually, do it. Yeah. Okay. And and do that and see what Jack Pierce would have done with his face oh, and, yeah. and the makeup because he was so good 
without dialogue. I, I would, I would be curious to see what he would do with that in a talkie. That would have been cool. Yeah, I like that. That's a good answer, man. I like that. All right, which movie do you prefer? It's a this or that style question. The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad or Jason and the Argonauts? Oh, it's got to be the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad because yeah? I actually saw that in the movie theater. Oh, so, well, there you go. You know. Not only that, but I saw the Sinbad one with Guy Williams. Oh, okay. On the big screen, that is fantastic because there's like a three-headed dragon. And it kind of looks Asian kind of a dragon because it has a flat face and snub nose and everything. But the best part about it was that in that one, there was this giant arm and fist that was smashing down on things and trying to get Guy Williams. And, and there was also a swamp that was sucking people up. And... And like I saw a meme on uh, Facebook, quicksand is not as horrible a thing as I was led to believe it would be. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that. But yeah, Sim- The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, I just love that movie. I mean, and of course you've got Ray Harryhausen's effects and, you know, so. And I believe the lovely Carolyn Monroe, so, <laughs> you know. All right, what's your go-to film to introduce somebody to classic monster movies? Well, I would have said... Bride of Frankenstein. Okay. But I actually used that as a go-to film for someone who had never seen Bride of Frankenstein, and they were puzzled by the mixture of comedy and horror. Huh. Now, to be fair, my mother saw this as a kid in the movies, and the kids in the movies had the same reaction so that she told me that the best time to get up and get popcorn is when the little people were introduced because the kids would sort of edit the film themselves by getting up and going out and getting candy and then coming Uh back. But, I mean, I love the whole thing, but strangely enough, contemporary people and people who have never seen the film have a bit of a problem with... uh, My first experiment was so lovely that we made her a queen. And now we have the very devil. He resembles me, don't you think? Or do I flatter myself? <laughs> I, I love the whole film. Mm-hmm. And, and as I watch that movie, as I get older, I mean, I, I love that sequence too. But mm-hmm. you're right. Mm-hmm. It is so out of the blue and mm-hmm. not connected to anything else happening right. in Universal Horror at the time. And you have to ask yourself, how are these little people living in these jars? Yeah. Because when they're, when they're not out being shown by somebody, they're in the dark and they're in this coffin-like box and not only that but if you actually read articles about alchemy and making homunculi when Pretorius says uh, that he uh, grew my creatures from cultures grew them as nature does from seed it sends you to images that you don't want to have about a petri dish and Dr. Pretorius so all right, enough said. So, yeah, the, the, it just seems kind of out of place. Yeah. And not only that, but you, you only see Billy Barty from behind. And, and I wish I'd actually met him to see what kind of makeup did they actually put on you to be the little baby? Because you're supposed to be like Boris Karloff, but what did they do for you then? Ah, mm. oh, missed opportunity. Yeah. All right, final card. Here we go. What's, <laughs> we were just talking about Harryhausen. What's your favorite Harryhausen creation? Pooh. I would say, even though he was given a very anticlimactic ending, I would say probably the Miniton. Oh, okay. Because I love robots. Yeah. And I love the Miniton. And throughout the whole 
movie. We are waiting for the Minotaur to have a battle with the troglodyte. So what happens? The Minotaur pulls this brick out and then it falls on him and destroys him. And it's like, what? <laughs> We're waiting yeah. for the battle of the century here. Why did you knock him out so quickly? <laughs> but I do love the Minotaur. And I guess if you wanted something from his earlier black and white things, well, then you got to go with the Retosaurus from uh, oh, yeah. Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which, first of all, is a completely made-up prehistoric creature. It does not actually exist. Right. I remember watching Beast from 20,000 Fathoms on... Um, Something it was it was called Adventure Theater, but it was with this ringmaster who also did the voiceovers for Mark's toys, and he had a little puppet called Clowny, the great Clowny. And <laughs> now, if you can imagine a show with a comical ringmaster and a puppet clown showing something like not only Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, but Kaltiki the Immortal Monster, unedited at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, showing the scene where they take the skin diving mask off of the guy and he's just basically still breathing, but a s dissolving skull. <laughs> This, and he would actually announce the movies like, and in the center ring we have Kaltiki, the immortal monster. You know, so that, <laughs> it was the weirdest show ever. I thought it was a fever dream until on Facebook they actually had a page dedicated to this guy and his son was actually answering questions. And I, <laughs> and I said, did I imagine this or did he really do this sort of thing? And he said, yeah, it was called Adventure Theater. And, and it seemed to me that they only had a, a, a rotation of four movies because it always seemed to be, it was either uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, Kaltiki the Immortal Monster, and um, I think it might have been Robot versus the Aztec Mummies. So these were, these were the movies that were in constant rotation. So if, if you wanted to see it again, wait three weeks and then you'd see and then it's back. So, yep, I've actually forgotten what your original question was. I don't was. even remember. <laughs> I'm still catching up on sleep and everything else. Mm -hmm. But that was the fifth card, I think. Yep, that was card number five. Yep. So you're going to be at the convention all weekend. This episode goes out next week. So obviously people missed an opportunity to see you there. Yes. Here, there, but anyway. Yes. Um, but you're online. Mm -hmm. What's your web address? You can find me at www.murdermysterytheater, theater at the end with an E-R, dot com. Excellent. And then, of course, look up Dwight on Amazon, where he's got his three amazing books. I, I guess they're considered a trilogy, right? Yes. I, although, here's the fun part. Um, while I was writing the first two, which is Who Framed Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and the House of Doom, I was writing the third book. The Vampire's Tomb Mystery, which at the time was called Bela Lugosi, The Final Curtain. But for legal reasons, I couldn't use the name Bela Lugosi, so I had to change his name to Armand Tesla. So calling it Armand Tesla, The Final Curtain, just wouldn't have made sense. So 
And maybe this isn't something for the show, but if you would use the name Bela Lugosi in House of Doom, why not? Okay, here's the story about that, and you can use it or not use it as you see fit. Midnight Marquee told me that they had told Bela Jr. that I was writing these books. Somehow, they didn't actually tell him. And the only reason I found that out was because I was being interviewed on another radio show for NPR, and they tried to contact Bela Jr. to ask him to be on the show because I'd already gotten Sarah Karloff to be on the show for Who Framed Boris Karloff. So the guy tried to get... So he had never heard of these books. So I had to call him and I said, but Midnight Marquis assured me that you were okay with it. So I had to actually send him copies of the emails where they actually said that they had spoken to him and everything was fine. So he asked me, he said, well, I can't really do anything about the other books, but, you know, because I sent him the book, the manuscript to the third book, and I guess it was just too close to home because it was very well researched. I mean, everything in it is... Well, I mean, you do that with all the books. Right. Very well researched. Yeah. Now, in this, in the third one in particular, I actually took lines that people actually said in documentaries to have them say during situations that, that had to do with Bela Lugosi's funeral and things like that. And I, you know, even spoke to some folks that were associated with Ed Wood and found out what they were doing at the time. So, very well researched, but I guess it was just a little too close to home because it was not his dad and his best, even though I treated him as as well as I possibly could. So, the thing about your books and listeners, I know we haven't talked about them in a while, um, which is a shame. I, I definitely need to do that because I love the books. Mm-hmm. I think, Dwight, I think you have really nailed the voices of mm-hmm. these historical characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a real sense of... Here's a big word, verisimilitude. Oh. <laughs> no, there's this, this this sense of reality because you did do the research. Yep. It just works. And I do like the books quite a bit. I wish they had um, a fourth. <laughs> well, so far the closest that we have to that is the anthology book that Brad Braddock is compiling where I where I contributed a story called The Abominable Inspector Crow. Okay. And in that... First of all, it's a title I can pronounce, um, in that it answers a question, because when I wrote Who Framed Boris Karloff, I had to watch Son of Frankenstein a hundred times, because there's very little material research stuff that you can... In fact, apart from Gregory Mank's film book on it, there's nothing. So I had to like guess where the sets were and all that, which I hate doing. And later on, I actually found out from Donnie Dunnigan that the sulfur pit set was actually a tower that you had to climb a ladder to get up to the top of it. So huh. it was a tower. It was all built as one whole thing and with the, with the crypts and everything else. And Manx's book had an article which suggested that it was actually sunk into the floor. And... Of the of the set, so that's the way I wrote it, and I wish I'd talked to Donnie before that, but you got to do what you can. But anyway, I'm very meticulous in in uh, in the research, and I try and get every little bit of information that I can. But it's not just me, because Sarah Karloff told me 
that her mother had a infection after having a cesarean, having her, so she was stuck in the hospital for three weeks during the course of the mystery. So I used that as part of the mystery. And in the second book, Ron Palumbo and his partner, uh, who wrote Abbott and Costello in Hollywood, actually invited me to see their research material on the making of Bud Abbott and Lou Costello meet Frankenstein. So I'm not just guessing about anything in that book. I needed to know, because there's a, there's a famous blooper where Bela Lugosi's coming downstairs saying, how careless, you should be careful, a person could get killed that way. And behind him, coming behind him, is Bobby Barber in the Jekyll and Hyde outfit that uh, Lou Costello sports at the, in the locker room scene. And Bela Lugosi does not look pleased that this scene was interrupted. But I needed to know what take that was. It turned out it was take one. Because uh, they actually had all the takes with the... Oh, wow. I would say clapperboards, but they really aren't clapperboards. They're actually something that's built into the camera that goes over the lens, gives you the scene number and everything else, and then you hear a beep. And the other thing that I discovered was that um, uh, Charles Barton, the director, never once says action. When he starts a scene, this is what he says. Here we go. And that's what he says. So that's how I wrote it in the book. Because originally I had a clapperboard and then action, and then I found out all this stuff. And I also found out that uh, the uh, scene in the, with the rowboat is actually shot in Lubin Lake, which was named after Harry Lubin, who did the uh, Francis the Talking Mule pictures and later Mr. Ed on television. So I, I found out everything. I found out what costumes Lou Costello wore on that particular day. I found out that apparently there's a candle that actually has a battery pack. Okay. And I'm still trying to figure out, those all look like real flames to me. Where the heck the battery pack comes yeah. from? And, and there, there are rubber chains on the set of the dungeon scene where the monster is in the monster chair. But most important of all, I discovered, and, I found, and thanks to an article that, uh, that they gave me, I found out that the entire castle, the whole thing, was built on two sound stages with the doors open so that it was like two stories, including the dungeon, including the... There was actually a tank for the uh, moat where, you know, where they say broom closet. That's all one thing. They're not separate scenes. They're not separate. It's all what you're seeing is what you're getting. They built the whole freaking castle on these two sound stages, and they would close the fire doors at night when when they close the thing up. That's the that's the kind of dedication that they had to putting this thing together. That's awesome. And that's the kind of research that goes into these books. So anyway, using that kind of research, I tried to do the same thing with The Vampires 2 Mystery. But like I say, I think it was just a little bit hurtful, even though I didn't mean it to be. And so he asked me to come up with another name. And so that's why he's uh, Armand Tesla, because 
in the Columbia Pictures, The Return of the Vampire, Bela Lugosi is playing Dracula, but he's dressed like Dracula, he talks like Dracula, he looks like Dracula, but he isn't Dracula, he's Armand Tesla. So. It's all but in, Drac- in name only. Right, yeah. so I, I decided to use the same name for the same reason. Hey, it works, whatever works, man. I've had people ask me, are you ever going to do a version with Bela Lugosi so they don't have to change the name in their heads? And when Midnight Marquis took over the publishing of it when the other publisher folded, they tried to get Bela Lugosi to go along with it, but they couldn't. Well, that's too bad. I mean, the book, I, you still know it's Bela. I mean, when, when you're reading the book, you still know it's Bela. So mm-hmm. I will make sure there are links to Dwight's Amazon page as well as his website mm-hmm. in the show notes. And of course, Dwight, I'll see you around all weekend, man. Yes. And do look for chillers, stories inspired by classic horror films. So my inspiration was Son of Frankenstein and other people have other, uh, other things. And I actually was one of the people responsible for uh, proofreading and making sure everything was according to Hoyle. <laughs> so eventually that's coming out and uh, Brad Braddock will be able to tell you more about it. supernatural powers of the evil eye claim still another victim. Its malevolent enjoyment of tantalizing torture hangs threateningly over John Saxon, Letitia Roman, and Valentina Corteza. Oh, she was always against me. She hated me. Madness. And the maddening aura that destroys reason fills their every breath with the smell of death. Have you ever seen a murder before? No, no, I've never seen anything like that. Never. Oh, stop playing games, will you, Landini? I don't know what you're trying to do, but I know that you're you're involved in this. Perhaps Nora has seen the killer. But how do we know that he hasn't seen her? The evil eye, like relentless tides, reaches out for them. And they defiantly hold ecstasy and horror in their arms and touch lips with terror while the evil eye watches their every kiss and invades their subconscious. from the Classic Horrors Club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We'd like to invite you to attend the next monthly meeting of the Classic Horrors Club on the Phantom Podcast Network. We think you'll enjoy our show, but don't take our word for it. Let's ask some of our listeners what they think. Excuse me, sir. What did you say after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? I'll never smile again. Wow, that's a little mean. 
how about you, sir? Would you recommend the Classic Horrors Club podcast? It would be very dangerous, not only for you, but for others. Well, we do talk about classic horror, from silent screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, but I don't think I'd call it dangerous. I think that's enough from our listeners. I've always said we have the, uh, best fans. Why don't you give us a try yourselves? We meet once a month during the Classic Horror Club podcast on the Phantom Podcast Network, found at downrightcreepy.com or at classichorrors.club. Oh, wait, here's one more listener walking his pet. What do you think of the Classic Horrors Club podcast? There's the stink of hell on this train. Even the dog knows it. We interrupt this program to bring you the following special announcement. The world's first horror head transplant has failed, and five brain donors have died in the experiment. Now you can see it all at your local theater in Beast of Blood. And on the same show, Curse of the Vampires, both brand new in gory color. You'll see a mad fiend transplant human heads in the Cave of Horrors and encounter stunning, screaming, shocking terror as it lives. A monster's head detached from its body, causing savage and inhuman destruction. More fantastic than science, more shocking than fantasy, the creature without a head, controlled by an insane artificial brain, Beast of Blood. Don't miss Beast of Blood and Curse of the Vampires, both rated GP. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We are going to bash some more and look at the Rally Awards, so let's see an article about a monster event where awards were given. The article is entitled Dracula Flies Again and is written by Paul Linden. It is found in FM 43 from March of 1967. Mr. Linden tells us about the fourth annual Anne Radcliffe Awards of the Count Dracula Society. Anne Radcliffe was a pioneer gothic fiction author from the early 1800s. The awards were given out at a banquet attended by 225 people in Hollywood, California. Those honored were author Robert Block, FM editor Forrest J. Ackerman, makeup artist Don Post, and the great Lon Chaney Jr. Here are some highlights from Paul's report. For their various contributions to gothic excellence, the winners received their handsome framed scrolls. Robert Block received an Anne Radcliffe Award for his Hitchcock television hour, The Sign of Satan, adapted from his weird tale, Return to the Sabbath, and starring Christopher Lee. In making his acceptance speech, Mr. Block had such observations as, When you stop and think about it, wasn't Bela Lugosi the original Batman? Wasn't it horrible in the papers recently about that insane murderer who killed people so that he could cut out their insides and restring his tennis rackets? I say that took a lot of guts. When I wrote Psycho, I never dreamed people would go crazy over it. And I believe there will always be a Dracula society because it's the one club that has a stake in the future. Then it was time for Don Post and his assistant to step forward and receive their rewards. They were very fortunate to be introduced by a monster movie star, Carol Luna Borland, who played opposite Bela Lugosi in Mark of the Vampire. Miss Borland, in dramatic movie actress fashion, told several interesting anecdotes, among them one about how she had been horrified when she visited the cellar of the Magic Castle to see the wax figure of Dracula there and discovered a blasphemous boo-boo. 
They had given him brown eyes, she cried. Bella with brown eyes. They were such an unmistakable blue. Caged near Bella was King Kong, and when I looked closely at him, I realized what had happened. They had given King Kong's brown eyes to Bella. She concluded by saying she was gratified the last time she visited the wine cellar of the Magic Castle to observe that Bella's eyes were now blue. But honestly, fellas, she said, I'd have given you the award anyway. In accepting the plaque, Vern Langdon spoke for his boss, saying, I do my level best to build an image for Don befitting the master maker of Monster Mass, but I just can't convince anyone he's a frightening person. Like Moby Dick, he always blows it. Under his breath, Don managed to scare Vern, though. He said, you're fired. For the audience's sake, however, he expressed his thanks. In an evening memorable for unusual entertainments, we now came to the absolute highlight, Lon Chaney. They called his father the man of a thousand faces. Lon might be called the man of a thousand deaths. In fact, he even played in a picture called I Died a Thousand Deaths. But taking a cue from the title of another of his films, I prefer to call him, ladies and gentlemen, The Indestructible Man. And to a thunderous applause, Lon Chaney left his table and made his way up onto the stage and into the mouth of the great red devil from which all acceptance speeches were delivered. What followed was totally unexpected and never to be forgotten. Following the pattern set by those before him, Lon first made some humorous remarks. In movies, I have been paid for four things, he said. For being ugly, that I can't help. For scaring people, at that he threw up his hands, made a horrible face, and growled. For acting dumb, and if I go on talking much longer, I'll just prove it. The fourth thing I regret to say I cannot for the life of me remember at the moment. Undoubtedly, some reader present will remember it and write in to fang mail so it can be included in a future issue. But Lon proved he was no dummy by pointing out that something which everyone else had overlooked. When the original introductions of all the special guests had been made, it had been requested that the applause not be given individually, but saved till last. Then the applause had been completely overlooked. But Lon reminded everyone of it then and there, and a long overdue round of clapping was given the other celebrities. Then the unexpected. You people have fed me and given me a good time, Lon said. I feel I should do something for you in return. Without benefit of any special preparation, he turned himself into the well-meaning but bumbling, dim-witted Lenny of Mice and Men fame. He came alive as a great actor before our very eyes. George, he began, in an amazing, sustained monologue of increasing intensity and power, he spellbound the audience with an on-the-spot Academy performance. When he reached the climax of the scene and bowed his head in his arms, his shoulders racked with sobs, the audience rose to its feet as a man to give him a standing ovation for the second time in one evening. It was a classic moment. We were proud and thrilled to be there and are happy to share the thrill with you who could not physically be present. That's all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This is Kenny for MKR. We'll be back with more next week. Adios! Wasn't it horrible in the papers recently about that insane murderer who killed people so that he could cut out their insides and restring his tennis rackets? I say that took a lot of guts. The cold, glossy pages of True Magazine call the killer shrew the world's most savage mammal. 
You'll never venture into a forest alone after you see The Killer's Shrews with James Best and Ingrid Good, motion picture horror masterpiece. The Killer's Shrews. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Dr. Frankenstein found the secret of life, but he lost control. Now, in a screen thriller, Frankenstein's castle of freaks, his monstrous creations, fantastic creatures break free. See Rosanna Brazzi, Michael Dunn, Edmund Purdom, and international beauty Christiane Royce in Frankenstein's Castle of Freaks. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Right now, we are so proud to have her, one of our favorites, Veronica Carlson. could ever hold him. No door could ever bar his way. He is back from the dead. Dracula has risen from the grave. I, when I first got the role of Dracula has risen from the grave and Maria, uh, Peter came to the studio because they were presenting the uh, Queen's Award of Industry to Hammer. And I was lucky enough to be there. And I mean, here's the Johnny-come-lately, never having anything to do with Hammer before. I was in costume, of course, as Maria. And Barbara was in costume as the barmaid. And there was Christopher, and there was Peter, and us two ladies who had nothing to do with anything at that time, being presented with the Queen's Award to Industry to the Lord Lieutenant of Buckinghamshire and his wife. And uh, what amazed me about these two gentlemen, I think you always have a preconceived idea in your head about people, you know, you see this tall, elegant man, and you know he's an aristocrat of some kind, and he's going to be unapproachable. Peter, and 
they were so approachable. It was amazing. It's like we'd known them all our lives. And uh, great sense of humor. And we were immediate friends. And uh, I, I enjoyed working with them so very, very much. So that was our introduction. And then, of course, we had the reading around the table of uh, the, the script, just to time it out and everything. And God, I can't remember how happy I was meeting people that I'd seen on TV, film, and been a fan of as growing up, and then, you know, from school through college. And that's here I am on the screen with them. It was cool, blimey, this is wonderful. I, I'm here, I made it. I blew the bachelor's degree I just got in, uh, in college. But oh my God. Or remember my father saying to me, don't do anything to embarrass me, darling. He wasn't very impressed with me going into the film business. But I hope I didn't do anything to embarrass him. Anyway. When I was in college, well, I was always pretending. I was always playing games of let's pretend. You know how kids do. And uh, when I went to college, we had a, a music director called Peter Goodwin. I used to sing in a choir with soprano. And I thought, I want to be with this man. He's absolutely ingenious. But when I went to college, he was the music director in college. And uh, of course, I joined the music side of things straight away. We did stage productions, uh, musical ones. We did The Conspirators by Schubert. I was one of the conspirators. Um, oh. And we sang Trauma Jury. I was one of the three maids. And we did, oh, we did reviews. And the, this is in our spare time. We, we then our lunch breaks between even, you know, from. Uh, afternoon classes between into, into evening classes, we'd do it. It was a constant uh, joy. I mean, Peter Goodwin said to me years later, those were the happiest four years of his teaching career. There was a group of us in college that sort of got together and meshed, a bit like Caroline and Martine and I, you know, that we, that we just meshed, all of us, and it was a, there were no drugs. If we could afford a lager at the end of a week, we did. We rarely could do that. And we just met up to chat. And uh, that, that's how it was. And at the, the end of my fourth year, he wanted me for the leader in La Vie Parisienne. So the principal came from down from the high school, Lofty Heights, and said, if she fails this exam, it's on your head, Peter Goodwin. So I couldn't do it. And I was very upset about that. But I understood why. You know, you, you can't cheat an art exam. I mean, you're there doing it on these, so you can't cheat. But uh, no, but I got through my, my college years very well. And, uh, and I, they were very happy years. But during those, that year, I remember going to the theater to see a Hammer movie, and I skived off a class. And I thought it was only me that did it with a friend. And I thought, we both said, they'll never notice us go away. But what we didn't know, other people said exactly the same thing. And when Mr. Shepherdson got to the class, there was nobody there. So <laughs> he thought he knew where we'd gone. And uh, when well, you know where the lights come up, and you know how everyone looks around to see who else. There he was. This man was six feet four and very well built. And we all looked at him and he said, I want each one of you back in class as soon as this film is over. <laughs> he let us see the film. And he said, and when we got back to class, he said, don't forget, I've passed my exams. You haven't passed yours yet. But we never skived off again. But it was a Hammer movie. And we, we, we were all fans of Hammer. And I used to think, I'll be up there one day. I will be up there one day. I didn't know how. I just knew it would happen.
Christopher had a great sense of humour. He, he'd go out and whack a few golf balls every now and then into Black Park or wherever he was. I asked him one day how heavy his cloak was. He didn't say a word. He took it off and put it around my shoulders and my legs nearly gave way. It weighed about 25 pounds. It was incredibly heavy. Thank goodness his stunt, <laughs> the stuntman and his double wore a very, very light because when he carried me up that mountain, I, and I thought, He's, I know I'm going to fall off. I know my head's going to And it was high. It really was high. But he had a... He never complained about those awful contacts. And I remember very clearly how generous an actor he was when I had to be approached by him in the cellar when I'd been thrown down by Barbara Ewing onto the cellar floor and I had to gaze up at him. Freddie had said, this is your eye line, darling, and he put his hand up behind the camera. I could just see it off camera. And I heard this voice, that lovely voice of Chris's. I'll be her eye line, Freddie. And I was so grateful to him. You know, acting to a hand is one thing, but acting to a man who's actually acting as if he were on camera with you was a remarkable gift to me. I've never forgotten it. And I've never stopped thanking him for it. And I was later to learn, much later to learn, that in fact Gregory Peck had done the same thing for him when he was a younger actor, and he'd never, ever forgotten that. And uh, it stayed with me. But he was a generous, thoughtful, kind man. And when I asked him to sit for me for that sketch, I wanted to give him a sketch. Uh, and it took 35 minutes, and I presented it to him. To think that he sat for me, because I would never think of daring to ask. I don't know how I got the goal to do it. But that's how approachable he was. And... Uh, <clears throat> He met my parents, and they thought the world of him. Everyone did. And uh, I remember the scenes. We took Hammer very seriously. There was no joking around. We took the scenes seriously. No laughter. And uh, we all enjoyed it. We loved the spirit of that company and that, those films. And Christopher used to say, you can be safely horrified. This is where you can sit and be safely horrified. And that's I think, was a beautiful phrase to use for Hammer. I can transplant his brain. If I don't, it'll die through lack of oxygen. In his nightmare mind, one more horror, one last horrendous act. Frankenstein must be destroyed. Oh, poor Terry, always with a cane. He was always walking into traffic. Nobody understood why. And he was always getting done in, you know. <laughs> um, he was a great contrast to Freddie Francis, and I think that was a good time for me because he thought I knew what I was doing, which was very encouraging, you know, for a start. And I remember the first day of filming, we were sitting on the stairs, Peter and I, and uh, we were doing to do my death scene. This is the first day of shooting. So, as if I'm not sitting there, Terry comes up to both of us and looks at Peter and says, so how would you like to kill her, Peter? And Peter said, I've been giving that a lot of thought, dear sir. <laughs> so I waited with bated breath to see. And he said, yes. And, he said, and so Peter went through the motions. He said, I thought if I had a scalpel and embraced her onto the scalpel, and it would go into her. Oh, what a wonderful idea. Excellent idea. Yes, I think that's a good idea. We'll put a wooden block. Nobody asked me. It was, it was, it was like I wasn't there. And I, I tried to, anyway, 
it was all done. It was all settled without me being there. Well, you know, I was there, but not according to them. So I had a wooden block attached underneath my blouse that then so protected me, obviously. And we did the death scene that first day. I died, I think. But, oh, but I said, please, may I die with my eyes open? Certainly not, darling. It would never get past the senses, he said. <laughs> Can you imagine? That's how it was. I wanted to die with my eyes open. I thought it would be to great effect. Anyway. I, but Peter I kept in touch with, and Joyce Broughton, his secretary. And uh, when Peter passed away, I was able to uh, do a portrait of him that could be auctioned to help with the window. They wanted to put a window in the church for him. And it helped raise money so I can use my work to benefit certain, you know, charities like pancreatic cancer. I one for Ralph Bates. Wayne Kinsey bought that one. The money goes to the charity. It was, um, kind of put my work to good use sometimes. Multiple sclerosis, things like that. Oh yeah, oh, Michael. Michael was wonderful. Well, he was in every Hammer movie, wasn't he? And Mom was like, and Christopher would say, "Oh my goodness, we're starring in another Michael River movie." <laughs> 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 he loved him. Yeah, he was adored by everybody. He, had, he was a sparkling human being. He, he fairly sparkled, like the spectacles he would wear. And I'd go and watch him do the bar scenes with uh, Barry Andrews. And we'd all be around just gazing at him, and he was rubbing the glass, cleaning the glasses. He, he was uh, so approachable. And at one of the conventions I went to, much later years, I, I did a portrait of him, but anyway, that's another story. Um, he was becoming uh, he, very forgetful. I don't know if he had senile dementia or if it was something he, he didn't remember. And he was standing on stage, and he was having all this applause. And he was just gazing, as like, why am I here? This is amazing, is this for me? And there wasn't a dry eye, you know, because you could see by his, his expression that he really didn't understand, but he did have a faraway memory that was coming back and knocking at the door. Do you know what I mean? And uh, that was the last time I saw him. Um, I've been so lucky to work with these people. Don't look. Shield your eyes. <laughs> For on the day you look upon them, you will surely die. House of the Gorgon. Oh my god, the House of the Gorgon. Boy, oh boy, that was fun. Well, Josh, Josh is a dynamo. For a start, and of course I'm working with Martine. I've never worked with Martine and Caroline before. They're just very good friends. And uh, the first time I met Christopher Neen was then over we there. We just got, it was like Hannah days again. We all got on, no trace unions to bother us and say, time to stop filming now. And I'm not moving that plant because it's in a pod. That's the gardener's job. And you know, that type of thing, because that was wrecking the film industry in Britain. And uh, Josh was so creative. I have to tell you one very lovely story about Josh. He had a wind scene with the leaves. I don't know if you remember it. The leaves were scattering. And uh, ages afterwards, when they sort of cleared it up, I saw Josh on his hands and knees and other people on their hands and knees looking for leaves. I thought, we can get leaves. They're outside. We can go pick some more. These were four very special leaves. And I asked him. He found the fourth one. And it must have taken 15 minutes. So it got blown under something. 
And I asked him, I, and he put them in a little velvet-lined box. And he collected them from Black Park, where we did so many pieces from Hammerfields. We were always doing something in Black Park. And he'd visited as a child at the age of eight. And he picked up four leaves from Black Park as a souvenir. And he put them in this little velvet line box, and the world was on its axis again. <laughs> That's how he is. He's, he's so, and he asked me to put the bust of uh, my lovely Michael Ripper on the bar. He said, Veronica, you've got to do that. You've got to be the one to put it on the bar. Little things like that all the way through. Josh's mother would come with lunch every day, the best meals. Oh my goodness, salads. Just beautiful, lovely lady. And she'd bring us lunch, and everyone was so glad to see her. Oh my goodness. And sangria on occasion. The first day was sangria, and the last, but not the meantime. And uh, Josh's father partook. It was a family affair. And it, we had, obviously, we, we, we spent every day being happy. How can you beat that? And I swear the sun is bigger in Texas, because as we came out of the building, the sun just filled the sky as it was setting. It was a remarkable time. Very happy time. Another hammer time, really. And if David, David Colton wants to come up, we have an additional surprise. We have an additional surprise for you here. David Colton is coming up from the uh, Rondo Awards. Veronica, that was wonderful, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we all love each other, but hearing stories like this, it just makes us feel that we're there, and um, it's so rewarding for us. Um, a lot of folks come and sign autographs and things like that, but only a few special people embrace the entire experience, and we feel like you're one of us in a way. So earlier this weekend, we gave Martine a, uh, one of these, and we gave, I say Caroline, but it's Caroline. Okay. And um, we'd like to present you with a Rondo Award Monster Kid Hall of Fame presented to Veronica Carlson. So many of you for so many, many years over the years. And you've no idea how much it means to me to be in this life we have, this live the memories we share. Thank you all so very much for making me part of your family. I I I don't I can't keep talking. of Roger Corman, who brought to the screen Edgar Allan Poe's most shocking horror tales comes the ultimate in blood-chilling screen experiences, The Terror, starring the incomparable Boris Karloff. You think I'm mad, don't you? 
in the role he was born to play, the terror, bedeviled by his own mad, all-consuming passions. With my own hands, I killed her. The terror, his evil, mystic powers go beyond man's wildest imaginings. If he resists, kill him. American International presents The Terror, starring Boris Karloff, dean of all horror demons, in this, his most demanding terrorization, The Terror, a film group production in color and vestoscope. Vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real, but fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good, real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, The Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. See the top double thrill, double chill motion picture program of the year. Curse of the Werewolf. In color, the harrowing story of the legendary half-man, half-wolf. His evil beast blood demanded he kill, kill, kill. Plus, the shadow of the cat. A shocking adventure into murder and psychotic fear. Two terrifying hits together. Don't miss them. We're so happy to be premiering the House of the Gorgon here. And uh, Josh Kennedy and I talked about it months and months and months ago, and uh, now it's actually happening. So let's talk to Josh, producer, director, writer, Josh Kennedy. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. No. <laughs> hello, hello! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> Josh, I saw some um, video of you very, very young, and I have a feeling that that was the initial seed for this project, the, uh, the Gorgon, the Hammer film. Yes. You want to tell us about that? Yes, well... There's this little hammer film called The Gorgon. Have we heard of this? So I forget I'm preaching to the choir here. And it's like, oh, of course, Hammer's The Gorgon. We've all seen that. And for some reason, I saw it around age four or five. And you would think, you know, Dracula or Frankenstein or The Mummy would be the easy one. But for me, it was Hammer's The Gorgon. And I was enraptured and immediately um, when I was seven, I directed a stage production with my dad of the Gorgon on stage. And yeah, I know everyone's laughing. It's true. And uh, it's always been, it's always been a, a great favorite. It's my favorite film of all time. And then it's the Ten Commandments. Um, the two, they go, they're a great double bill. But, um, but yeah, I'm, all, I'm always, it's Clash of the Titans, Medusa is in, and uh, the Gorgon is just, it's just a great character. And, 
Yeah. Okay, then how did Houses of Gorgon, the origin, originate? Well, it was actually Caroline Monroe, lovely Caroline Monroe, and we were all, I had become friends with uh, Martine Beswick, who will be making her big entrance in a bit, and, um, and we were all got to become friends with lovely Veronica Carlson, and the wonderful Christopher Neem, the wonderful Tammy Hamalian, and, and it was Caroline Monroe at one of these conventions who was like, you know, we were all friends, we should make a movie together. And we're all like, <laughs> I was the only one that immediately the blood drained from my face. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's, 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 that was, and I was like, okay, what, what, what movie can we, can we come up with? And it was, oh, Gorgon, Hammer, we have, to, we have the Hammer people, and that was the seed. Okay, what were some of the things that had to come together for this whole thing to happen? I mean, we got people in London, right, and people in yes, Texas. Yes, yes. Luckily, how did it all come together. We had a wonderful uh, Indiegogo campaign. Raise your hand if you contributed to the Indiegogo campaign. Thank you. So, round of applause to you guys. You 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 helped make make it possible. And um, and that and then so that it was. We're all going to fly down. I'm from South South Texas. And we flew everyone, my lovely cast, down to South Texas for one week to shoot. We only had the budget for one week. <laughs> and um, we shot the whole thing in this tiny, it wasn't tiny, uh, this wedding banquet hall. It was a banquet hall where you have weddings and quinceañeras and parties and graduations. And we built all the sets in this tiny little banquet hall in Texas and um, shot the whole thing in five days, and real Roger Corman style, and um, yeah, it was, it was, I still can't believe, I mean, I'm still in awe that it, that it happened. I'm, why am I sitting here, what, what is this? Is this real life? Is this just fantasy? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. How about Derek's contribution in post? Okay, Derek M. Cook, where are you at? Yeah. He is uh, Monster Kid Radio. He helped out with all of the crappy sound that I recorded. He came in and polished it up and made it sound beautiful. And also Mitch Gonzalez. Where's Mitch? Raise your hand. Can you stand up, sir? This guy created all of the snakes for the film. And fantastic. Um, and also, uh, where's Reaper Clark? Reaper Clark's over here. He wrote, he chant. Round of applause for this guy. He channeled James Bernard and did the most James Bernard tribute score you will ever hear. And um, we all know James Bernard, when you, live, you watch Christopher Lee's Dracula, it's Dracula. Um, there's a similar theme for this one, and I'm sure those of you with James Bernard ears will, will hear it. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it was a big collaboration of all sorts of people. I hope I'm, I'm probably missing people, and I'm sorry. My brain is complete mush right now. I have no idea what's going on. But uh, well, we, we've had uh, been promoting any creepy classics and monster yes. trash religiously, and I know you have on your your pages, and uh, the response has been just outstanding. So, and it's you know people have such fondness for the Hammer films, and and you trying to emulate or giving a tribute to yes. the Hammer films is just, just great. Uh, what are some of your uh, other favorite Hammer films besides the Gordon? I mean, there's, it's, it's hard for me to dislike a Hammer film. I'm sure there are many of you who feel that way. Um, Brides of Dracula. I mean, I, I'll try and list 
just off the top of my head, the tributes that you'll see. And I, there are so many tributes in this film. There are paintings on the wall from different films, Hound of the Baskervilles, Fear in the Night, Brides of Dracula, Dracula who's risen from the grave, Dracula AD 72, of course. I mean, I think this is the crowd that needs, that will appreciate the, the film. We get it. Yes, you, you will get it. And I am just overwhelmed. Look, look at, we're, we're packed house here. Who, who would have thought? And we're having another one at, at 10. At yes? Right, in, in case there's people that can hear us outside the doors, we'll be doing it again at 10 o'clock in here tonight. Yes, yes. Uh, how about uh, the, the gals? Uh, when you approached, uh, were you all just really sitting and talking together, or did you get a hold of Veronica and Martine and Christopher? Uh, and Caroline and I know I know we were all we, we were all having having dinner that first time that Caroline said that and then on the plane ride home back to Texas I wrote on the vomit bag this idea for House of the Gorgon <laughs> and uh, I mean that's where the greatest ideas come from right and uh, it, it was just, it, it all just snowballed I, I, I see more promotional ideas yes coming off from that. <laughs> yeah and it was it was Unbelievable, and everything, the planets aligned and everything worked out, schedules lined up. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't even know, know what to say. Well, let's, let's, why don't you introduce people, we'll have them come up and take a bow before we screen this film. Yes, yes. Why don't you give, give us, uh, we'll invite them up one at a time. Okay, okay. Um, first off, we have Miss... You all know her from, I feel like, a, let me think, hold on, I didn't plan for this. You all know her from Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, and Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, and The Ghoul, um, the lovely, exquisite, she plays Anna Banning in the film, we have the lovely Veronica Carlson. <laughs> The detail is startling, and I was asked in, in the bar scene. You know, you won't notice it. I have to tell you, a small statuette, a little bust of Michael River, and this gentleman said he insisted that I be the one to place it on the bar, and I've never forgotten that. That, that touched my heart, because we all love Michael River, right? All right. Um. Does Veronica stay up here? Shall she? Yes, yes, stay, stay up here. Stay. Take a seat. All right. You all know him from a small part in Lust for a Vampire, and of course you know him as the great Johnny Alucard in Dracula AD 1972. He plays the tortured Father Llewellyn in this, Mr. Christopher Neem. said, I got this outline of a film written on a vomit bag. <laughs> Would you be interested? 
I hope we've been elevated from the vomit bag. Uh, it was such a pleasure. Such a, we, it was like a family reunion, this film, making this film. Everyone, everyone without exception, was just totally brilliant. It was a, a love fest. I am sure that's going to portray itself on the screen. Thank you. So good to see you all. You all know her from Prehistoric Women, one of the great films of our time. She was Sister Hyde in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. She had a cat fight with Raquel Welch in One Million Years BC. You all know her as Martine Beswick. I know her as Mrs. Kennedy. Please, Martine Beswick. I don't know how this happened, that we got married without getting married. Um, let's face it, I mean, the minute we've been doing these little videos for five years, and when he said, uh, would you do anything? I said, yes. That was it. All he had to say was, would you do a film? And I said, mm -hmm, yeah. And that's it. <laughs> and here I am. Uh, it was fabulous, magical. He created such a magical place for us to be. Truly, truly. Hope you enjoy. Thank you. And yes, round of applause. And just one final thing we all know, Caroline Monroe, uh, she spins around like a tornado. She needs to rest, so she's off in London resting right now. But I would just like to shoot a tiny little video, and on the count of three, if we could all say, we love you, Caroline, or we miss you. Let's, we love you, Caroline. Can we do that? Okay, on the count of three, hold on. Let me get the camera ready. Also, uh, the love interest in the film, Georgina Dugdale, if we don't know this, is Caroline Monroe's real life daughter. Okay, some people didn't know that. All right, good. All right, hold on. I'm gonna, I'm, I'll do the introduction and then I'll turn it around and on the count of three, we'll all say, we love you, Caroline. Hi, Caroline. I think you know uh, these people here. Darling. We have lovely Veronica here. And lovely Chris. We're here at uh, the <laughs> Monster Bash. I was going to say the US premiere. Okay, don't get mad at me. We're here at the US premiere, and we have uh, some people who would like to say a few words. Ready? On the count of three. One, two, three.
We let things pile up in the DVR. We add them to our queues. We wait for the DVDs and Blu-rays. We time shift. The Time Shifters podcast. Sci-fi, horror, fantasy, superheroes, comedy, action, film, television, maybe some not-so-current events. Find us on iTunes or at timeshifterspodcast.com. SOS. San Francisco calling. Monster has attacked. It came from beneath the sea. Golden Gate Bridge ripped from towers. Rush no atomic weapons or whole west coast is doomed. See Columbia Pictures spectacular and terrifying. It came from beneath the sea. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. The sound you hear is dripping blood. This is the start of Black Sunday. Black Sunday comes but once every hundred years. On that day, the undead demons of hell rise to unleash an orgy of evil on the world. From Nikolaj Gogol's great classic, American International Pictures presents Black Sunday, the most frightening motion picture you have ever seen. She was murdered 500 years ago. There in the barren waste that was her cemetery, they nailed the mask of Satan to her face. Not since Dracula stalked the earth has there been such an unspeakable day and night as Black Sunday. If you happen to live in the Portland, Oregon area, I'd like to invite you to join me, Dominique Lamses, and Chris McMillan, downtown Portland, this Sunday, August 4th. I know that I am incredibly fortunate to live in a town that supports movie theaters bringing in classic monster movies, classic genre films, and Sunday, doubleheader. You know what? We're not calling it Sunday anymore. We're going to call it Mario Bava Day. Because at 3 o'clock at the 5th Avenue Cinema, downtown Portland, they are showing 1971's A Bay of Blood. I guess the movie's also known as Twitch of the Death Nerve. I haven't seen it. I've heard a lot about it, and... Well, I'm cautiously curious about it, but it's Mario Bava. So, you know, I got to check this thing out. Dominique loves Mario Bava with good reason. And I can't wait to watch the movie with her. And of course, Chris McMillan from the shadow over Portland is going to be there as well. And then later on in the day at seven o'clock at the Northwest film center, which is also in downtown Portland, black Sunday. 
classic film, iconic. Barbara Steele is amazing in this film. And this one I have seen. Can't wait to check this one out. It will be in Italian, subtitled. I can't wait. If you're going to be in Portland this Sunday, I would love to meet you. I would love to hang out with you. And I'd love to watch a couple of movies with you. Twitch of the Death Nerve. The first motion picture to require face-to-face warning. Every ticket holder must pass through the theater's final warning station. We must warn you face-to-face. Warning. Diabolical. Fiendish. Savage. Twitch of the death nerve. You may not walk away from this one. We're recording. Live from Wisconsin and Portland. It's Saturday night. No, it's not. It's Friday afternoon. It doesn't sound nearly as cool. <laughs> and I'm going to open with that. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? We've even got nice weather here, which is uh, its a nice break. So I'm, I don't want to jinx it and say for how long. But uh, yeah, yeah, don't talk about it too much. you know. Right. <laughs> uh, we don't have the AC on. We don't have the heat on. And there have been only a couple of weeks this year that hasn't happened. <laughs> right on. Right on. Yeah, we've been pretty warm here. Why are we talking about the weather on Monster Kid Radio? What is going on? <laughs> what do you want to talk about, Derek? The 2019 Monster Rally Retro Awards, affectionately called the rallies, because that's just easier to say every time. And <laughs> and uh, yeah, we've got Stephen D. Sullivan here. Steve Sullivan, Monster Kid author, fellow Monster Conservancy member, and a dear friend and the man who came up with the bright idea to do more than one decade <laughs> at a time, which brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm well, so glad it, we're it's, doing it that it's way. helped. Hey, man, we're we're halfway home now. <laughs> I know it's crazy. Where we will be at the end of the show, and then we have to do I don't know the 60, 1960 to seventy two and three year chunks or something. Yeah, we'll figure something out because then we'll we got to go back and do the silent films too. So I, I don't know what we're going to do there, but we'll figure that out. That's that's like five thing. years from now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, but anyway, we're doing thirty five, forty five, fifty five. That's right. This time and uh, y'all listened to the nominations which we did uh, a couple of months back mm-hmm. on the show or. Um. Make sure there's a link in the show notes to that episode. So episode 423 was the announcement of the ballot. Or you can just play along at home because we're going to go through all of the nominees before we announce who won. I know who won. Steve does not. I do not. And that's that's part of the fun of all this is that, you know, going back through them and looking at them and, and saying, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, that was this year. That was this year. This is a uh, boy. The competition was tough there. These guys were really good. Oh, my gosh. The women in that year were fabulous. This was a, a very good year. Uh, 35 was fantastic. Well, all three decades were great. Yeah, um, actually, this, this is a I, I I think a strong set of decades is like right in the middle of the decades. And Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, that seems to have kind of supercharged this in some ways. We got a lot of, a lot of good stuff. It's like you kind of have the best of the old of the decade and then the new stuff coming in too. Right. And so, so 35, 45, 55, let's start with 35. And on the ballot I'm looking at, we are starting with best actor. That's right. So we've got Boris Karloff playing a dual role. In the Black Room, Bela Lugosi playing a mad ship's crewman or kind of a skeezy ship's crewman in The Phantom Ship, a very early Hammer film. The first Hammer film? Is that the first one? Pretty like, darn close. Pretty darn yeah, close. Anyway, uh, we have Peter Laurie, who is 
enthralled in the love of mad love as a, a wonderful maniac in that. Randolph Scott, the square-jawed hero in She. Yes, Randolph Scott, the same one that they sing his name when they say it in Blazing Saddles. They sing it <laughs> reverently. But he was also in a genre film, She. Then we have Ernest Thesinger as the mad Dr. Pretorius in Pride of Frankenstein. And not to start off with something that's really hard, but <laughs> I think I probably voted for Thesinger. But I don't remember for sure because this is a very, very tough category. Which way did you go, man? I voted for Karloff. Karloff did not win. Ooh. Ernest Thesiger did for Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, it's a very memorable part. And I don't know that we're really ever going to see him again in the rally. So it's it's kind of good that people that are one-time horror star, even though he was in more than one horror film, that they're kind of, you know, have one really shining moment in horror pictures actually win. That's that's kind of cool. I, I like it. Yeah, so, he did a couple other things up before this, you know, the ghoul, the old dark house. But I mean, this is the iconic horror role for him. And one of the iconic mad doctors of all time. Oh, yeah. Uh, before we move on to best actress, we had two write-in votes for Lugosi and the Raven and Henry Hall and Werewolf of London. They didn't take anything, obviously, you know, uh, Thessinger won, but, you know, it was interesting to see them pop up as write-ins. I wasn't keeping count, but you told me that in past years we'd done six. This year we only did five. Mm -hmm. And at least in one case, which I think we'll mention, we actually were called, Derek and I together, were called on the carpet at Monster Bash for leaving something out of a category. But we'll get to that (laughs) later. So, Best Actress, 1935. All right, here we go. Carol Borland for Mark of the Vampire. Francis Drake is the ingenue in Mad Love. Valerie Hobson for Mrs. Werewolf in Werewolf of London. Elsa Lanchester, the bride of Frankenstein, title character, and Mary Shelley. And we have Irene Ware in The Raven. And as much as I like Elsa Lanchester, and I do, her part is really very small. And I think I went with Francis Drake in Mad Love, though I wouldn't swear to it. Really? Because again... This is a very strong category. And Frances Drake has uh, quite a lot to do, including at one point playing a mannequin in Mad Love. And Mm -hmm. I think she's terrific. I honestly don't remember who I voted for in this category because I was torn between Frances Drake and Elsa Lanchester. Not that my vote (laughs) would have changed anything because Elsa won. And I'm not really surprised by that. Even though it's a short portrayal, it is an iconic portrayal. And yeah, she's great. I mean, one movie appearance basically, and everyone knows what it is and what it looks like, and that's sure. a testament to her, to Jack Pierce, and to the director as well, who's going to come up right now. That's right, because he was in the Best Director category. He was. And the Best Directors in 1935, we have Todd Browning for Mark of the Vampire, Carl Freund for Mad Love, Lou Landers as Louis Friedlander in The Raven, Irving Pitchell and Lansing C. Holden for She. And we have James Whale for The Bride of Frankenstein. And again, this is a great category. These are all really strong directors. And I voted for, and probably you voted for, and maybe everyone else in the world voted for James Whale (laughs) for The Bride of Frankenstein. Because Bride of Frankenstein, guys. (laughs) The Bride of Frankenstein. 81% of the vote went to Bride of Frankenstein. So yeah, James Whale took that. James Whale took it, and deservedly so. 
I'm not even sure we need to discuss that any further. If you haven't seen Bride of Frankenstein, well, go watch Frankenstein first. Then watch Bride of Frankenstein, available in Blu-ray and, and a brilliant restoration. You want to see these things. Will Bride of Frankenstein continue its sweep of 1935? Uh, I think it is entirely possible. It will. We're going to have to see, though. That's right. The best movie in 1935, The Black Room with Karloff. Bride of Frankenstein with Karloff and Ernest <laughs> <Manchester. laughs> Thessinger. Mad Love with Peter Lorre. The Raven with Karloff and Lugosi. A great film. I love The Raven. And Werewolf of London with Henry Hall. And as difficult as this is, and it, it's, you know, another great slate, uh, Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And almost 79% of the vote went to that. So, yeah. Bride of Frankenstein, for sure. Every one of the films got votes. Nobody came in, you know, nobody limped in with just one vote. I mean, everybody got oh, representation. Awesome. But Bride of Frankenstein did take it. Yeah, I need to rewatch The Raven. I haven't seen it for a while, but it's actually... You know, one, I need to do that, too. Karloff Lugosi. It's maybe my second favorite Karloff Lugosi, although it would vie with Son of Frankenstein for that. I use The Raven as an excuse to justify why I'm okay with Frankenstein's monster looking a little differently when he's played by Lugosi or Chaney or Strange in the other films. Yeah. Uh, just because there's this, you know, Lugosi does this bit with Karloff, you know, if I make you look like a monster, you're going to act like a monster. So I just kind of reverse that. If you take the brain of Igor and put him in Frankenstein, of course he's going to start looking like, because he's evil. And he, anyway, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, okay. All right. I can see that. Yeah. I can see that. It's a stretch. And, and the, finally, <laughs> we come to the best monster category. The big thing in the rallies. That's why it's last. It's last because it's most important. That's right. Best monster in 1935. We have the bride from the Bride of Frankenstein. We have Frankenstein's monster from Bride of Frankenstein. The surprisingly good vampire, Professor Paul Christan from Condemned to Live. That is one of my finds of this rally award season was watching condemned to live. It's surprisingly good. And I think in the public domain too. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think I'd ever seen it before. So which good. Is kinda, yeah. Yeah. Surprising. We have uh, Edmund Bateman, who is Karloff's character in the Raven. And we have the werewolf from the werewolf of London. Now this is again, <laughs> a crazy difficult category. If condemned to live was seen more often, it might, might get more votes than it's probably going to get. But looking at the ballot for me, it's got to be between the bride and the Frankenstein monster. And honestly, I don't remember which one I voted for because the bride is iconic. This is the only film she's in. She's amazing, but this is the Frankenstein monster where Karloff speaks and honestly, in some ways, it's my favorite portrayal of the monster in the entire saga. Hmm. So I'm not sure which way I went on this. I'm I'm gonna uh, uh, maybe because she's this is her one shot. Uh, give it to the bride for me. Okay. What did you do? Um, <laughs> I went with the monster. Yes, I you went, went with, with the monster. Okay. I yeah. don't remember which way I went. I could have gone for either one, and I think. When I voted, which was not too long before the deadline, I think it was like, oh, which one do I want to do? And I, I almost flipped the coin or punched the ballot blindfolded or something at that point. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what did the uh, the voters say? So, uh, just to make a comment about the the nominees here, I learned early on, well, I think with the first rallies, 
that it's really easy to just use one movie to fill up every category and, and multiple nominees. I tried real hard to not pick multiples from the same movie for the same category, but right. it was impossible to do that with Bride of Frankenstein just because the bride is so iconic despite having less than five minutes of screen time. You know, right. it's just an iconic thing. That right. said, it wasn't enough to beat Frankenstein's Monster, which took half of all the ballots. So Frankenstein's Monster won. Okay, cool. And I'm like I said, I think that may be my favorite portrayal of Frankenstein's Monster in, in all of cinema. So I'm I'm good with that. I like it. Right that on. That wraps it up. Frankenstein's Monster wins again, which is should not be really surprising. No, not at all. Clean the sweep. Monster has done really really well, and you're right. I hadn't even thought of it. It's a clean sweep for Bride of Frankenstein. Wow. Indeed. And I, I want to make a comment on something you said a second ago, uh, Condemned to Live being your find this year. That is one of the things that I wanted to do the rallies for, was to maybe you know spotlight a few things that maybe people don't think about or know about, that sort of thing. And uh, I've received multiple comments from people, especially from the 1945 list, movies mm-hmm. that they didn't know about, they hadn't watched before, that sort of thing. And to know that you know, people are out there watching some of these movies just because they turn up on the rallies list. That's awesome. And I hope everybody's enjoying what they find because condemned to live was a find for me too. really enjoy that movie. Really underrated. Never really gave that film proper uh, spotlight here on MKR. Maybe I will down the line because right. I think it's something people would enjoy. I watched it on a public domain disc and then went out and bought another public domain disc that I haven't gotten a chance to watch yet from another studio in hopes that it might have an even better print. Mm. I liked it that much that I went out and was like, oh, I want a better print of this, which has happened again very recently with uh, a movie from 1951 that I discovered I didn't watch until this last week. But we can talk about that after we finish the rallies, maybe. Sure. Okay. Well, let's move into 1945. 1945. Here we go. We got some really interesting. Oh, it was really good. And I think, you know, the war is starting to widen down. Things are starting. Or I'm sorry, the war is over, excuse me, at this point, Um, I think. History Depends wise. on what part of the year. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So the war's winding down. Things are kind of changing a little bit in terms of Hollywood and what people want to see on the screen. And it really gave us some real diversity in terms of the types of monster movies we're going to find. Uh, and I think the ballot reflects that. Yeah. And, and again, we do have some discoveries here for me in 1945. So I'll talk about them as they go. And one of them is in the best actor category. Here we go. Best actor, 1945. We have John Abbott. From The Vampire's Ghost, another discovery of mine, thanks to Monster Kid Radio and Friends. This year, a terrific film that I had never seen before, written by uh, Lee Brackett. Am I yeah. remembering mm-hmm. that name? Yeah. Uh, it was a, a great writer who worked on uh, Empire Strikes Back, among other things for all you people that are younger. Uh, John Abbott for The Vampire's Ghost, playing uh, the vampire in The Vampire's Ghost. We have Lon Chaney Jr. reprising his best role ever. The Wolfman, a.k.a. Larry Talbot in House of Dracula. Flared Krigar, uh, which we were admonished at uh, Monster Bash was pronounced like Cigar, so it's Krigar, in Hangover Square. And he is not, he died at a very young age, and if he had not, he probably would have, uh, you'd all know who he is if he hadn't died so young. We have Boris Karloff in one of his best roles as the mad, is he a general? He's a mad military man in the Isle of the Dead. Well, he's not really mad. He's just kind of cautious and willing to protect people at their own cost. Anyway. Very determined. Very determined. <laughs> very determined. It's one of Karloff's best roles for Isle of the Dead, which is a terrific film. And we have Michael Redgrave, 
as the ventriloquist in Dead of Night, which is an anthology film, portmanteau film from England. And Michael Redgrave is uh, is one of those people that got Sir in front of his name later. So, you know, he might kind of be a good actor. This is an amazing category. Oh, yeah. Great actors and some of the best performances of their lives. And I am betting that Hangover Square and The Vampire's Ghost are things that not a lot of people have seen before maybe hearing about them during the rallies. And Vampire's Ghost was one of those for me. If you guys hadn't talked about it earlier on Monster Kid Radio, I never would have found it and never would have discovered what a cool picture it is. I was really happy that Todd Brown from The Haunted Cinema wanted to talk about that here on the show because it, it is a really interesting movie, a different take on the whole vampire thing, and it's, it's, it's a fun film. It's well-made, well-acted, and, it's, and it's, it's nice when you find these things that are kind of, they're not maybe quite up to the level of universal horrors. But they have that feeling of universal horror. Yeah. And that, that's kind of one of them. It could have been a universal, maybe. So, who did I vote for here? And I got to say, I had to go with Laird Cragar because he's freaking amazing, man. He really is. <laughs> and I think, I think it goes back to what you were saying a second ago. If he didn't die when he did, more people would know who he was, and he might have done better uh, at the rallies this year. Uh, but it's really hard to top Lon Chaney Jr. Even in a movie like House of Dracula, where he's kind of winding down a little bit right. with the performance. It's the second to last time he played Talbot. And it kind of shows a little bit, but he still I know. makes you feel so much. So Lon Chaney Jr. won. That's why the Wolfman is one of my favorite one of my favorite monsters. Who'd you vote for, by the way? Did you vote for Lon or did you vote for Laird? Or I voted for Laird. Yeah, yeah. it's got to be Laird because more people need to know about him. Uh, right. Yeah, Greg Meg's no, book that, about him is fantastic. You know, and he's in these two genre pictures. He's in the Hangover Square and, oh God, I just spaced the on Lodger, the other one. The Lodger. He's in those two and he's just, you watch this guy. And the funny thing is when they did the a review of his career, I think it, it must have been a monster bash. I was like, oh yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. And he was, you know, he wasn't always kind of at the forefront of the characters, but he's always really memorable and he's good. And anyway, if you can see Hangover Square, see it. It's on a box set with The Lodger and one other film, uh, The Undying Monster, maybe. That oh, Fox put man, I don't remember. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't know if it's out of print or not, but uh, that was a box set. Anytime you got a box set that has two Laird Krager performances on it, it's going to oh, yeah. be worth it. Anyway, seek it, seek it out. Seek mm-hmm. it out. Maybe it's streaming somewhere. Who knows? But uh, totally worth seeing. I mean, he came in second here in the rallies. Uh, you know, if you really enjoy the empathy that Lon Chaney Jr. evokes in his performance of Talbot, you're going to like what Krigar does with Hangover Square. Just there, right. there is such an emotional pull to what he's, well, even in The Lodger as well. There's just right. this kind, kind of, of broken. Tortured. Mm. Yeah. No, really, good. Really, really good. Really good. Really good. And, and I think that's a, an apt comparison. And I'm not, I'm not disappointed that Lon Chaney won because I do think that, uh, you know, it's been a long time since I've seen Mice and Men, but I do think that Talbot was the role of his career and he played it in a way that no one else could play it. And that's why we love the Wolfman so much sure. is because not only the cool Jack Pierce makeup, but because of the amazing way that uh, Lon plays that role. Yeah. We had a couple of write-ins, uh, Lugosi for the body snatcher and Karloff for the body snatcher. Kind of expected that, to be honest, just because I know Karloff, Lugosi, right. 
know, they're amazing together. Oh, that's a great role for Carla. Carla, it, really, right? it really is. But like I said, when we announced the nominees, I really wanted to kind of shine a light at some of the more subtle things that he was doing in Isle of the Dead. And I thought it kind of just edged a little bit over the body snatcher, just a little bit. I, I think that the Isle of the Dead portrayal by Karloff is less predictable yes. in some ways than the, the body snatcher role. That's why I think I was probably one of the people that said, suggested, why don't you do Isle of the Dead rather than body snatcher? Mm-hmm. And though he's great in body snatcher, and I think if memory serves, he kind of credited that role as, as saving his career for him because it was, you know, by a... a great director kind of a little bit out of outside the horror genre and therefore it, it helped propel him to do more stuff yep. when horror was you know kind of winding down a lot of ways in 1945 uh, which will make it interesting to see next year when we do 46 what our choices are here since the choices in 45 are really rich indeed sure and speaking of rich indeed there we go let's move on to the best actress category we have jane adams the hunchback in house of dracula linda darnell great actress in hangover square nancy kelly in one of the my finds of this year the woman who came back i'd never seen this picture or even heard of it before we started researching it and it turns out to be really pretty cool although i think derek and i both agree we would tweak the ending a little bit yeah it's a little scooby-doo there at the end a little scooby-doo at the end a little more scooby-doo than it needed to be so but it's still a terrific picture and, and very atmospheric we have donna reed the object of dorian gray's affection in the picture of dorian gray we have helen walker the uh, love interest from The Man in Half Moon Street, which is uh, another film that I'd never seen before we started researching and talking about this this year. It's a good picture, and it's actually weirdly similar to Dorian Gray in a lot of ways, uh, although it, it definitely could use – I don't know. where I think I saw it on public domain or YouTube or something like that. The picture I saw was not in the best shape. Yeah. It, could, it could use a restoration, certainly. And I'm going to tell you that – I went with Jane Addams in House of Dracula because I love that character. I've loved that character since I was a kid. She doesn't have a whole lot of screen time, but she manages to make the character sympathetic. And she's a hunchback, and yet she's beautiful at the same time. And I think it's a different thing. And when certainly when they advertise the House of Dracula as having Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Hunchback. You weren't thinking the hunchback was going to be a pretty nurse. And I think she pulls it off, and I always feel bad that her her character doesn't end up getting uh, the wish she wanted throughout the picture at the end of the picture. But who knows? Maybe some fan fiction could fix that. (laughs) (laughs) Are you listening, Kurt McCoy? Uh, Anyway, uh, well, you joined the 71.2% of the voters, Jane Addams, House of Dracula. Wow. I'm overwhelming. I'm a little surprised by that, actually. But though maybe the fact that probably the rest of these movies are not seen as much. Yeah, I think so too. To with it, um, if you haven't seen any of these films, they're all worth seeing. We just sang the praises of Hangover Square. Fabulous woman who came back uh, again. One of my happy finds this year, associated with the rallies. Uh, Donna Reed. The picture of Dorian Gray is an amazing picture, and. The picture within the picture, the actual picture of Dorian Gray is really creepy and awesome. If you haven't seen it, it's a great film. 
on every level. And then and in Half Moon Street, another find really worth seeing, though. If I was going to pick one from the category to tell people to see, it would be The Woman Who Came Back. I want to uh, comment on Dorian Gray. You know the face app that's been going around, you know, you take a picture of yourself and it turns you old using whatever? Somebody uh-huh. posted uh, a comparison of Dorian Gray before and after the face app, and it's just the same picture. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I, I think I've mentioned before that the Hurt Hatfield, who played Dorian Gray, he just died in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And the the pictures I'd seen of him contemporarily did not look very different from the pictures from him 70 years ago or whatever right? the hell it was like. Right? Okay. <laughs> so he played the, played the picture of Dorian Gray. Did he actually live it, too? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, anyway, it's a great pi- picture and people should see it. As you said, but I think people should try to see all of the films on these lists if they can. Because I think they're really worth seeing. And I think if somehow, you know, there's one we don't see that gets left off because we don't see it, sometimes it turns out to be a gem. So we're always interested in hearing about films that maybe we didn't nominate, maybe we didn't hear about. And again, if uh, hopefully you and I will remember at the end of the show to talk about the one that I saw recently that I realized I hadn't seen that before. So from 51, I think. Yep. Anyway, still in 1945, on we go. Best director. We have we Walter Combs from The Woman Who Came Back. Bernard Knowles, A Place of One's Own, which we didn't really talk about uh, previous to this on the show, except that it's a ghost story. It features James Mason, and it is uh, – I watched it again within the last two weeks. And it's it's really good, though weirdly, I didn't remember I'd seen it until like the final 15 minutes of the film. Mm, okay. <laughs> Which maybe means I watch it late at night, or I watch it long ago, or I watch it while I was doing something else, and it got to the some of the end scenes. I'm like, oh, I know this. A place of one's own. It's a British ghost story, kind of, uh, you know, on the the same kind of thing as the haunting, and that's the one I compare it to. It's kind of similar to that in a way because it's British. The British attitude toward the haunted house is, is kind of funny <laughs> in a way. <laughs> like, I'm not going to let any ghost drive me out of my house. Right, very, very British, very British. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's really worth seeing. We have uh, Ralph Murphy uh, for The Man in Half Moon Street. We have Leslie Salander for The Vampire's Ghost. And Robert Wise for The Body Snatcher. And that last one, that is who... I voted for Robert. Yeah, Mike. you and almost everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Including you? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a great film. It's a great film by a great director. And uh, I was thinking about this as I was looking at this and thinking about, this is a guy that made great films. He, You know, he made a great science fiction film, The Day of the Earth Stood Still. And, and you know, the director's cut. And Star cut, Trek, the motion the, picture, man. The director's cut of that is actually much better than the the cut that they showed in the cinema uh, so he made those two he won an oscar for west side story he probably won other oscars too so he made one of the great musicals of all time he made some of the great horror pictures of all time this and the haunting this guy was amazing <laughs> Indeed. for directors top flight so i'm not surprised he won all right well let's tackle best movie here best movie okay here we go tough crop here guys you're warned we have the body snatcher the Dead of Night, House of Dracula. We have Man in Half Moon Street, and the picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, that's a strong lineup. Uh, the weakest one is probably the Man in Half Moon Street. The other ones are all top flight. 
honestly, I don't remember what I voted for because I'm sure I was torn between the Body Snatcher, which ounce for ounce is probably the, the best picture on the list, although Dead Knight would be right up there too, and House of Dracula, which is one of my favorites. I'm probably going to say that I voted for House of Dracula because I love that so much. But how did you vote, Derek, and what did the votes say? I voted with the majority, which was not House of Dracula. It was The Body Snatcher. I can't deny that that's probably the best movie on the list. <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah, no, it's a great film. If you haven't seen it, uh, you know, Karloff and Lugosi, I wish there were more Lugosi in it, but Karloff is, it's one of his great performances, you know, and the director just won Best Director on the rally, so you yep. shouldn't be too surprised. That brings us to the most important part, and there are going to be some things here that uh, maybe didn't appear on some of the other lists, at least one. And so we have Best Monster. We have Paula Dupre, the Ape Woman, from the three-movie Ape Woman series, from The Jungle Captive. Those are fun. They should be out on DVD or Blu-ray, and yet they never have been. Just a, just a point of clarification. This was the first time she played The Jungle Captive or The Jungle Woman. Uh, it was right. Aquanetta who played her in the previous two films. I don't know why she didn't come back for the third. I don't know the deal behind that. Perhaps if Universal put the movies out on Blu-ray with a little 15-minute documentary about it, they could let us know why, but, you know. Right. Maybe we need to <laughs> Maybe we need to do a podcast about that, Derek, and then convince them to let us do that, uh, that 15-minute commentary. Ah, uh, there we go. Here we go. Uh, we have, anyway, Paula Dupre, The Jungle Captive, The Ape Woman. We have Dracula, as played by John Carradine from House of Dracula. I really like his Dracula and the two Universal Draculas. We have the Frankenstein monsters, played by Glenn Strange in House of Dracula, and we have the Wolfman, as as played by uh, Creighton uh, Cheney Jr. <laughs> Creighton Cheney, otherwise known as Lon Cheney Jr. in House of Dracula. Uh, we have the vampire Webb Fallon from The Vampire's Ghost great list an interesting and surprising list and there's no way i'm not voting for the wolfman i went with the wolfman too because i mean it's the wolfman you know and that's what won so the wolfman is one of the iconic universal monsters and aside from the creature from the black lagoon he is my favorite there you go uh i wanted to mention the writing that had come in it only got one vote but it was hugo the dummy from dead of night oh that's really creepy so yeah yeah <laughs> good vote good vote out there Nicely done. See Dead of Night if you hadn't. I need yeah. to rewatch it. It's very creepy. One of the reasons I haven't rewatched it is that is one of the one of the monster movies, and there there are a number of them like this certainly. But it's one of the horror horror slash fantasy slash monster movies that I really don't watch or want to watch during the daytime. Mm. So I want to watch it at night, and I want to have you know I want to have as many of the lights out as I can, and I want to have not a lot of other stuff going around. So that has delayed me rewatching it probably for, I don't know, four or five months at this point. I think you just described how I'm going to watch it again. You know, the way I'm going to set it up to watch again. That's awesome. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. All right. So 1955, things are a little bit more on the sci-fi side of things here. We're really into the creature feature, atomic monsters, things like that. But still a few outliers, you know, some, some more interesting genre stuff happening. I'm yeah. really excited to see how this turns out. I think oh, yeah. Best Actor is going to surprise some people. So why don't we go ahead and get into that? Yeah, let's see what's going on. 1955 Best Actor. We have uh, John Agar. The man. The man from Tarantula. A terrific picture. Brian Donlevy as Quatermass in the Quatermass Experiment. Now, I want to point out now, 
a lot of people say quarter mass because it's really easy to say that. Yeah. Kind of a more normal USA word somehow, but it's not. It's quater mass. Oh man. You know what? I even typoed it. (laughs) I think I put quarter mass on the ballot. It's quater mass. You're absolutely right. (laughs) Whoops. Maybe I did. I don't know. I'll have to Maybe you did. I, it's not. I'm, it's right on what I'm looking at here. But I yeah. thought I'd bring it up because I I hear people saying it wrong all the time, and that's that's when you know you have what what uh, we used to call in the English uh, textbook business. I have a reader's pronunciation, there which you means go. you've never actually heard it. So yep. Quatermass. In the Quatermass experiment, we have Richard Denning from Creature with the Atom Brain. The man, again, Richard Denning is one of those guys, man. Just when you think sci-fi, 50s, action hero types, I go to John Agar, I go to Richard Denning, I go to Richard Carlson. I mean, they're just amazing. So Richard Denning's right up there for me. Yep. Yeah, no, he's a great, great actor and uh, a good performance from him in this uh, kind of atomic zombie picture, as I recall. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I've seen it. We have Robert Mitchin from Night of the Hunter. And this is one that I'm thinking probably maybe not a lot of people that uh, saw this battle at have seen this movie or had seen it before we put it on the ballot. But as far as creepy movies and horror movies, it is top notch horror movie. And we'll probably talk about it a little more in a little bit. So anyway, Robert Mitchum, the great Robert Mitchum, who, you know, from many, many, many other films and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and TV stuff, including Dan Curtis's the winds of war <laughs> and the sequel to it, which I don't remember the name of anyway. The Winds of War Part 2. I don't know. There, was it War and Remembrance? I don't remember. Um, anyway, Robert Mitchum, there's your Dan Sember reference for now. And we'll get to the final uh, actor in the category. It's Jeff Morrow from This Island Earth as uh, one of the aliens, the lead alien from This Island Earth. And this is, uh, <laughs> you know, the fives, man. There were no easy choices of the fives. But for me... I talked about going for ones that don't appear before because, you know, maybe this is the only chance you're going to get to vote for this person or this character or this movie. Uh, I had to go with Robert Mitchum from Night of the Hunter because, damn, he's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where did you go, Derek? Well, of course I went to Agar. I mean, my man, right? Of course you did. But yeah, well, that makes sense. I was kind of surprised that Robert Mitchum took it. I really, I mean, wow. I think he's fantastic, but I thought also that a lot of the people that would see this ballot would not have seen Night of the Hunter. I'm glad that a lot of people have, and if they hadn't before the ballot, I'm glad they sought it out because it is really good. And is it? It makes you wish that Charles Lawton had directed more pictures because yeah, it's the only one. We'll talk about that in a minute. Best actress. Here we go. Congratulations to Robert Mitchum. Kind of a an outlier for Monster Kid Radio. Yep. And uh, certainly, I, I guess you could say that, you know, uh, Cape Fear, I guess you could categorize yeah. that as a horror f- picture, sure. too. Sure, sure. You know, and he's uh, the creepy guy in that, too. Best Actress, 1955. We have Mara Corday in Tarantula. Faith Demurg in The Cult of the Cobra. We have Faith Demurg again <laughs> for this island Earth. It wasn't this... We could have put her in for a third thing this year, right? I think if we if we had. Oh, she but got a ride in for it. <laughs> <laughs> it came from beneath well, the sea. There you go. Right? Yeah, she was yeah. in that. And I actually really like her in that one. So I might have voted for her in that. We have Kathy Downs from the Phantom of Ten Thousand Leagues, and we have Laurie Nelson, who is uh, has not 
K slash Julie Adams from Revenge of the Creature. Uh, strong women category, despite the fact that Faith Demurg was clearly the woman of the hour. <laughs> I'm going to say I probably went with Mara Corday from Tarantula, but I could have easily gone for Faith in Island Earth, too. So, uh, who'd you vote for? Did you vote for Mara? You I, for I did Faith? vote for Mara. I, I love Mara Corday. And if you go back and listen to the last time I had David Schechter on the show and we talk about uh, the giant claw, I kind of revealed that Mara Corday would be like my second 50s girlfriend. So. <laughs> <laughs> but she's also fantastic in this. Uh, you know, she's, she's just great. Yeah, no, she is. She is, and if we'd had the uh, the the other Faith of Merg uh, nomination here, I might have gone for that one instead. But I think sure. probably for Mara because she's terrific in this and, and a, a deserving winner. And you said this is, uh, Faith got a a, a write in for came from beneath the sea. Yep, which is uh, Harry Housen picture, and of course beloved mm-hmm. by me because of that and because all Harry Housen pictures are awesome. Moving on to Best Director, 1955. We have Best, Best Director. Director. We have Jack Arnold for Tarantula. We have Val Guest for the Quatermass Experiment. There's your Quatermass, Derek. It's right there. It's I the, knew I screwed it up somewhere. <laughs> the Quatermass yeah. Experiment. <laughs> we have Ishiro Honda for Jujin Yukio Otoko, otherwise known as Half Human. Which is really difficult to see, uh, sadly. This one is probably the hardest one to see out of all the rallies this year, all the nominees. That one was the toughest to see. And I I almost feel kind of bad that we put it on there because it is so difficult to see. And people might have confused it with the uh, the John Carradine-infused version of it. Uh, But, you know, it is what it is. I haven't even seen the John Carradine-infused version of it. Oh, okay. I'm not even sure. Is that readily available? That one's a lot easier to find. Is it? Yeah. Okay, I've, I haven't found it lately. But not I, as, not I as easy. I mean, not like Godzilla King of the Monsters easy, but it's easy to find. It's, it's easier to find. So Okay. Uh, anyway, we have uh, the great Shiro Honda for uh, a really interesting picture. We have Charles Lawton in his only stint as a director for Night of the Hunter, which is just, that just baffles me. Yeah. I think Night of the Hunter didn't make a lot of money. Maybe, and maybe that was put people off of it and off of letting him direct again. But it's an amazing film, and the cinematography in it is just mind-bending. Oh, it's beautiful. It's terrifying, but beautiful, yeah. There's a scene where the kids are floating down the river at night. Oh, man. It's beautiful and eerie and surreal, and it's, oh, man. This Anyway, Charles Lawton, his only directing job as in Night of the Hunter. We have Joseph M. Newman from This Island Earth. And for me, you might guess, by the way, I just rhapsodized about it, despite the fact that I love Tarantula and I love the Quatermass experiment and, and Half Human's really good, and so is This Island Earth. I voted for Charles Ott, man. So we had one write-in. We had a write-in for Jack Arnold uh, for Revenge of the Creature. Uh, only one write-in there. Uh, by one vote, the director that won was Charles Lott. By one vote. Oh, my God. It was my vote. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Coming up right behind him was Val Guest. Interesting. Cool. uh, I would not have predicted either of those outcomes. I would have thought Jack Arnold might have... uh, when I walked away with it for Tarantula or that the, the, uh, Ishiro Honda, you know, 
sure. a kaiju boat might have turned out strong for Ishiro Honda because that is a kaiju picture. It's not a daikaiju picture. Right, exactly. Kaiju is mm-hmm. normal size. <laughs> exactly, exactly. This should tell those of you that haven't seen either of those pictures, go out and see them. See them. You know, I, I always hate to try to, uh, you don't want to oversell anything to anybody, but, you know, if they're on the ballot, they're worth seeing. And, uh, and there were things that didn't make the ballot that are certainly worth seeing too. And, you know, Revenge of the Creatures, yeah, I can totally see that as, as having a directing, a directing credit because it's pretty damn cool. Well, it was on the ballot for best movie. And the best movie. Speaking of go. best movie, <laughs> here we come. So for the best movie, we have Cult of the Cobra. We have Roger Corman's The Day the World Ended, which was kind of a, hey, we should kind of put this on the on the ballot thing because we try to have some diversity here mm-hmm. I think and then we have uh, Jujin Yuki Otoko half human we have This Island Earth and we have Revenge of the Creature and I this is the category where you and I were lambasted 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 at Monster Bash because <laughs> we did not have on this set Tarantula so I'm thinking Tarantula Probably got at least one right in. Yeah, Tarantula got a right in as it it came from beneath the sea. And nobody called us on Night of the Hunter. Uh, that was not on the list, but it did get some right ins. Oh, yeah, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Tarantula, we caught some flack on it. And just, I mean, I get it. It's a fantastic film with John right. Edgar's Mario Corday. Wonderful special effects. But, you know, we, we, we had to uh, kind of look at the movies overall. And I think there's one movie that was two and a half years in the making that needed to be on the ballot, and it won. It was This Island Earth. <laughs> I probably voted for Revenge of the Creature, and I suspect you did, too. Oh, yeah, of course. You freaking love the yeah. creature. Yeah. This Island Earth. Yeah, and it's, this is, you just read three movies that got write-ins that totally could have been in this category. Um, and, and you know, maybe some people would say we should have taken the three bottom vote-getters off and put those three in, maybe. Um, but there's a, there's always a judgment call here, and and one of the reasons to do this is to get people to watch more of these movies. Well, ultimately, so I'm going to blame you though, because at the end, I gave you the opportunity to you, add one. You did. And if I had thought at the if I had thought at that point, <laughs> oh, it came from beneath the sea or tarantula, I might have added those things. Said, well, we don't have to add any more in any of the other categories, but let's put tarantula and it came from beneath the sea. So, listeners, <laughs> send your hate mail to Stephen D. Sullivan. Oh, it's my at- fault. No. <laughs> My fault. I'm not. I'm, I'm the one that didn't uh, didn't expand all the categories to six things because <laughs> God knows that was going to be hard. So yeah. if you have things you want on from forty six, fifty six, or thirty six, yeah, send them to Derek, man. Get them on the list. You know there are a lot of us that have sent uh, Derek that sent Derek recommendations on this, but I, I'm sure he's always happy to hear more. Yeah, every year we kind of do it a little differently, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get closer to the rallies next year. Yeah, so absolutely. I can't believe we're we're actually at the point where we're doing this once a year now. There was one year where we got really jammed up and ended up doing two in one year because the previous year nuked or something. I don't remember something. Nah, I'm getting happened. better about scheduling. <laughs> <laughs> 1955, the final category. That's right. It all comes down to this, man. Best monster. This is the one. Best monster. We have Lisa Moya, Cobra Woman from Cult of the Cobra. The Paul Blaisdell mutant monster with the horns and the claws and all that weird crap and extra arms 
from the day the world ended. Angilas, otherwise known as Angiras, from Gojira no Gaiakushu. Hopefully that's fairly close. Godzilla raids again. Uh, we don't have Godzilla because this was not our favorite suit Godzilla, and we thought no. Angilas deserved a mention in his first appearance. Mm-hmm. We have the Metaluna Mutant from this island Earth. And we have the Gill Man, otherwise known as the Creature, from Revenge of the Creature. Now, I have to say, for me, as much as I like the other ones, it came down to the Metaluna Mutant and uh, the Gill Man from the Creature. And weirdly, I think Millicent Patrick had a hand in designing both of those creatures. That's exactly what creatures. I was about to say. They're both Millicent Patrick. So, it's still a somewhat controversial thing. How much did she do? How much she didn't do? It, it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, if, if you follow artists and you see their work, you can see that there are things in both these things that have uh, a resemblance, an artistic resemblance to each other in the in the things that she supposedly worked on that yeah, it looks to me, as a guy that had a minor in art history, looks like, yeah, she worked on both of these. But when it comes down to anything versus the creature in the Black Lagoon, I will always vote for the creature in the Black sure. Lagoon. Sure, sure. Unless it's Godzilla, and then I'm going to flip a coin. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I voted for. I voted for go. the creature. What so did we, you vote for? Well, before I tell you, we had some write-ins for the tarantula and the octopus from came from beneath the sea. Which uh, is actually a septopus or sextopus. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah, but it's supposed to be an octopus, but he, for budgetary reasons and for reasons of ease of animation, it only had six arms. We all know that, right? Yeah. So I voted for the Gilman as well, of course. Of creature course. fan. However. However. It ooh. didn't win by itself. There was a tie between the Gilman wow. and the, Metalo- the, the mutant. The <laughs> Metaluna mutant. That is so fitting. Yep. What a great note to end on for the 1955 rallies. We have a tie. Fabulous. Good job, everybody. uh, Couldn't have predicted that. Couldn't have arranged it if we tried. That is the rallies for this year. Stay tuned. Uh, Next year, we'll announce the nominees for 36, 46, and 56. Of course, if Steve will come back for that, we'll have him back for that. Uh, And I, I have a feeling it'll be hard to keep you away. Right. God and life willing, I'll, if, you know, if I'm here, I'll, uh, chances are I'll do it. <laughs> but between now and then, of course, we're going to have Steve on the show at some point for other things. We always do. Yeah, that'd be good. And you can always find him on his website at sdsullivan.com. Right, or cushinghorrors.com if you yeah. want to throw me some money on Patreon. Now, before we go, yes, I did promise that I was going to talk about a find from, I believe it's 1951. Okay. Which I don't even remember if we had on the rallies for 1951. So someone that's... Uh, better at looking things up than I am right now could check it out and that is a a, a science fiction picture called Unknown World which is in the public domain Okay. and I had in my mind thought I thought I'd seen it and I think I had it confused with um, the incredible petrified world because both of these are about expeditions that go down into the earth now the unknown world is about people that get into a drilling machine there's like seven guys and a woman who are looking for shelter against possible nuclear fallout from possible nuclear weapons. So they create a, a, uh, a group that's called something like the Group to Save, Save Humanity or something like that. They build a boring machine, just like you know uh, mm-hmm. the Pellucidar stories, and bore down into the Earth looking for habitable pockets 
of air and water and things like that within the earth. Have you seen this film, Derek? You know, I don't know if I have, but I think, Steve, you just found what movie we're going to talk about next when I have you back on the show. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, so they go down and they they encounter dangers and they encounter some strange things. And, of course, they have, you know, personal conflicts. And uh, and the, the weird thing, I thought, for 19... 19- 51 is as they're setting this up it starts with a newsreel which is a kind of an interesting thing to do oh yeah huh uh, about this society that's trying to save humanity and they describe the uh, the woman who is an md doctor as an ardent feminist which i thought wow 1951 that's kind of really <laughs> strong language for 1951 i didn't expect that at all anyway it's a it's a very interesting picture it has pretty pretty good special effects it is in the public domain there's a very good copy of it a copy that's better than the mill creek copy that's on archive.org as i talk about this and i was like how have i never seen this i love journey to the center of the earth style pictures journey to the center of the earth with james mason is one of my favorite movies of all time how have I never seen this? But I'd never seen it. I I clearly confused it with something else. And uh, like I said, I don't remember if it was even on the rallies for that year, but it certainly could have been. So listeners, stay tuned. Later this year, Steve and I will be talking about Unknown World. I'm looking forward to it, man. This will be fun. You know, I, I love finding pictures I haven't seen before and low-budget pictures I haven't seen before that are actually good, <laughs> like uh, The Vampire's Ghost or uh, any any of the other ones we mentioned right now that are slipping my mind. But uh, Condemned to Live is one of the other ones. It's always a great joy. I was like, wow, look, right what, you, on, look at what you can do, even if you don't have a lot of money. Right. Look what you can do. That's inspiring. And it's, you know, it inspires, I think, I hope it inspires people to make films today. And it's certainly those kind of inspirations that are responsible for the films of Christopher R. R. Mim and Joshua Kennedy, who are friends of ours. Mm-hmm. And there are other people that are doing that kind of stuff, too. But those guys, I think, do a particularly outstanding job, even among their peers. That they do. That they do. Keep keep your eyes peeled for, for uh, films like that out there in the world, for films like Condemned to Live that we've never seen before. Exactly. For whatever reason, that have gotten overlooked. And there, there may be films like Unknown World that are stuck on these Mill Creek 50 box sets, 50 picture box sets that maybe you've watched 49 of those films and missed that one or whatever. It's worth checking out. So do that. Let us know when you find ones like that. You think we may have never have seen. You can talk to us either on the, the Monster Kid Radio Facebook page or at uh, SaveMonsters.com, which is the Monster Conservancy Facebook page, where we welcome all of you to come and hang out with us and talk monsters. So, listeners, thanks for listening and being part of the rallies this year. And again, check out Steve's work at Cushing Horrors or stsullivan.com. There are always links in the show notes, everything Steve's up to. So check that out. And Steve, thanks for being part of the show, man. Oh, it's been great. I, I have a great time. You know, I think I've said before, I'd, I'd be on every week if you'd have me. <laughs> <laughs> Three animated TV series, three animated feature films, over 50 years of stories, over 150 characters, 10 core comic book titles, 27 spin-off comic book titles, nearly 30 limited series spin-offs, and of course, four feature films. Well, 
Okay, five if you count Captain America Civil War, or maybe it's like four and a half. The Avengers are a Marvel Comics mainstay, and no matter how many films crush it at the box office, or how many more Avengers spin-off titles come out, it all comes back to that original comic series that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby thrust upon the world in 1963. And I'm going to read the entire run. My name is Derek M. Cook, and I'm a recovering comic book fan. Over on my YouTube channel, Comicstalgia, you can join me as I make my way through the comic with my Reading the Avengers YouTube series. Every episode, I'll take a look at an issue of the comic, share my thoughts about the story, its artwork and characters, and reflect on how the issue may have impacted or inspired other facets and corners of all things Marvel. I'd like to invite you to join me as I make my way through every single issue of this iconic comic book. Assemble with me at tinyurl.com slash reading the Avengers or look up Comicstalgia on YouTube where you can find all the previous episodes and even subscribe to make sure you don't miss anything while we're reading the Avengers. That's tinyurl.com slash reading the Avengers. Nuff said. What is it? I don't know. Ejected from unexplored secret stratus, this giant harder-than-steel piston disgorges strange creatures, inundating our world, twisting the emotions of women, distorting our men. This is a piece we got off the mare. Reflex action like a snake. Cut a snake in half and the two pieces go off in different directions. These things take over a man's mind, he becomes a... A robot? A machine taking orders? Join the hunt for the hiding place of terror. Find the breeding place of these globs of destruction. In feeding the mouth parts, rupture the cells, convey the food to the stomach by a, a pumping action. that'll burst your blood vessels with suspense. See the Brain Eaters. Well, sadly, we are at the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for listening and being part of the Monster Kid Radio experience, for downloading the show, for retweeting tweets, for sharing posts on Facebook, for spreading the word, for giving us honest reviews in the Apple Podcast directory and everywhere else you can download podcasts. I just really appreciate all of your support. Now, if you have any comments for the show, you can always email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. You can even send me an audio recording there, which is what Bill did at the very beginning of the show, or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. Of course, big thanks to Jerry Green. Big thanks to Kenny. And big thanks to Kevin Slick. He's the one that provided the photo that we're using this week for the album cover of this episode of the podcast. Also, thanks to Reba Clark, the composer behind the House of the Gorgons film score. And, well, 
many other incredible pieces of music. Reber can be found at reberclark.bandcamp.com. And the reason I'm giving him a shout out is, well, you know, that music that I played after Josh introduced House of the Gorgon, I didn't want to just play the trailer again because I've already played a little bit of it, you know, over and over and over again over the past several weeks. So we played a little bit of music from his score from the film. So if you like what you heard, head over to reberclark.bandcamp.com. Check out the album. Check out all of his work and let him know that you heard about him here on Monster Kid Radio. Michael Ramsey is the man who recorded the Q&A with Veronica Carlson. Thank you for... If you read Scary Monsters magazine, well, you've read his work because he writes for them. Thank you, Mike, for making it possible for me to have that content for the show. You can find links to everything that we've talked about here in the show over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. The contact information is over there, of course. Links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, and our Twitter. It's all over there. As well as a link to the Monster Kid Radio Book Club, where you can purchase any of the books that you've heard about here on the show through Amazon. Use the link there, and we get a little bit of a kickback because we're an affiliate through Amazon. You can find Dwight's books listed over there, all three of them, Who Framed Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi in the House of Doom, and The Vampire's Tomb Mystery. Pick them up. Check them out. They're great. Monster Kid Radio definitely approves speaking of dwight next week we should have the reading of the short story that he recorded for us at monster bash it's a really cool short story think frankenstein think the body snatcher that's all i'm gonna say i may have even given away too much but come back for that because that's happening next week what else is happening next week honestly i don't know i am completely out of the conversations that i had at the monster kid radio table at monster bash with the exception of the reading that's it You've heard everything there is to hear that I recorded personally at the table. There is something that I recorded after hours one Sunday night, and that'll be coming down the line. But yeah, as far as Monster Bash goes, I, I think we're pretty much done, with the exception of some audio from some of the presentations that were given at the Bash as well. And I'm still trying to work out how best to present those, if we're going to be able to present those, that sort of thing. So stay tuned for that. Just stay tuned to Monster Kid Radio because, well... There will be a new episode next week and, well, plenty of new content. I want to thank you again for listening. Thank you for being part of the show. You guys and gals are awesome. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.